you will give the people an ideal to strive towards. They will race behind you. They will stumble. They will fall. But in time, they will join you in the sun. In time, you will help them accomplish wonders. Welcome to the Anything Goes podcast, the best geek and pop culture show broadcasting from Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney. And today we're doing a very special review for a very special movie because 79 years ago, Action Comics number one was published. 57 years ago, the Justice League debuted in The Brave and the Bold number 28. And four years ago, DC Films, the brand of which that many of us are a fan of, was born with Man of Steel. And that is what we're talking about today. And as you can tell, I said we because I always have a guest in every show, except for that one time when I did a solo show, and it was kind of babbling, and it, even I don't like it that much. But I am very gracious and very thankful to have this guest on uh, my show right now. She is the host of I Love That Movie, which you can find on iTunes as well as Google Play and Stitcher. So, uh, Lisa, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to uh, record this podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for asking me. I'm so happy to be here. I can't wait to talk about this movie. Yeah, so am I. Even though, like, uh, a little peek behind the curtain, there was a little miscommunication when we were talking about this <laughs> in the first place, which, which is like, I guess that's just how it. It was. I, I, we made. I made the joke like, oh well, this is getting off to a great start. Like, we're not. <laughs> we're not even sure which movie we're talking about. <laughs> Um, yeah, <laughs> but it's no okay. worries. Yeah, it's, all it's right. just a. I have kind of like I guess a busy podcasting schedule this week, so I just I think I just got confused. No, <laughs> Sorry, no, it's all good. <laughs> like uh, I literally just like because because like I like I work two jobs and everything, and so most of my evenings I'm like, all right, hey, it's my first evening free. I get to I guess I'll have to do the podcast and then do my laundry. I'm like I, I and somehow. <laughs> And then I'm going to get six hours sleep to get up and do it all over again. So I'm like, all right, this is going to be fun. Um, so yeah, but any anywho, uh, enough babbling. So let's jump into Man of Steel, our review of it right now. actually get into the movie itself i think we should talk about our history with the superman character to begin with so since you're the guest uh when did you first become introduced to the superman character um you know i i would say probably around the same time as batman you know as as a child i guess maybe eight or nine years old but i'll admit uh this character didn't really appeal to me at that time 
And I would say this movie actually kind of changed my mind about the character or at least made me a lot more interested in his origin story because before this movie, I hadn't seen the original Superman movie. Um, I never saw the show. Uh, so, so yeah, I think the only time I ever really saw that character was when he would be on like the Batman cartoon. Um, cause there were like some, wasn't there, there was an animated series that was like part Superman, part Batman. Yeah. It was, yeah. Yeah. Because like it started out like with the Batman animated series. And then once that ended, um, that same creative team went on to do Superman, and since that was so successful, they decided to let's bring Batman back. And then they had the the Batman Superman Hour, which they were, they were packaged together, and they mm-hmm. had their whole new intro for, and that led into Batman Beyond, Justice League, JLU, and etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I remember thinking, you know, even even when that came out, I wasn't that interested in the Superman cartoon. I was kind of just like, I for that hour, I was more interested in seeing the the Batman one. So. I, I have to be up front and say that that's kind of that's just my history with the character. I wasn't I wasn't like a real big fan. And that's totally fair. I mean, like it would be kind of I think it would be kind of crappy on anybody's part to say, like, oh, you were not there when I was there and when I became part of a fan. And then all of a sudden just kind of wet, wave your finger at like and just be looked <laughs> down upon because I mean. Because fandom is very is very heartfelt, or it's very this fans can be very protective of what they love. Sure, and, and it can immediately become nasty. Just look at Twitter uh, <laughs> any day that it takes it, it to the point that James Gunn has to go on Twitter and tells the the Marvel and DC fans like, "Chill, guys, this is this is not <laughs> like we should all be to a one united front here." Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I mentioned it before, but like, I mean, uh, this past year at New York uh, City Comic Con, I'm in line to uh, get a chance to meet Kevin Conroy, and there was a dude in front of me just bashing the DC films, and I had to just be like, just calm down, don't say anything, don't, like, just call, <laughs> and I had to text my buddy Sebastian, like, I need somebody to vent to, and he made the joke, like, okay, you would go to a Comic Con and try and pick a fight. I'm like, are you saying I have anger <laughs> problems? He's like, no. I'm like, alright, thanks, I feel, I feel really good about that. And so, and you had no other interactions with Superman before, like, Man of Steel in a impactful way? Not, yeah, you know, and, and again, I'm definitely not trying to come after any Superman fans out there at all. Like, I think that it just wasn't in my wheelhouse. I mean, I think when I was growing up, you know, definitely had, like I said, the, the Batman cartoon, but I never took it further than that. I didn't watch the Justice League cartoon as a kid. I didn't watch... You know, I never saw the old Super Friends cartoon, so it, I just kind of—he just kind of wasn't in my vocabulary. I, I guess maybe my parents weren't real big fans or something, and maybe that's why I wasn't introduced to it as much. But I kind of had this conception about the character that he was just, you know, godlike and perfect, and so I had a hard time wrapping my mind around where the conflict would really come from. And I know that sounds really, you know, ignorant now like knowing more about the character now but that was my I guess outsider perspective on it so I just never you know it was like the opposite of what Batman is and so the opposite of what I thought a hero should be like kind of you know like in an interesting way for me yeah I mean yeah it's like it's a tough character to write I mean yeah I mean like I think it's um I think it was Mark Millar who said like he's like the the toughest character to write because he's the most invulnerable and also vulnerable at the same time. If you just have a kryptonite bullet walk up behind 
Clark Kent and he just put a bullet in the back of his ear, like, all right, Superman's dead. And so, mm-hmm. and yeah, and so, like, and it's, there is a kind of disconnect, and it's just the fact that he is an alien, and sometimes that could be kind of off putting. And, but some people say, like, oh, well, look at Martian Manhunter. Like, well, that's a little, little different because of different power sets. But when it comes to, like, how I was introduced to Superman, I remember being aware of the Superman, the movie, the Dick Donner uh, 1978 movie. And it was always, and, like, I remember I would always go to my, uh, cousin's house in upstate new york and they always had they had a copy on vhs and it was maybe because it was it was next to like i don't know why they kind of put it in the same way because they put it next to the, the godfather collection that they had and i know the godfather producers were kind of a part of the production of that movie i've mm-hmm. always kind of like held it in that regard like oh that is superman the movie that's something to be highly regarded for that and so <clears throat> excuse me and that it like since it is a little bit of a slower movie, then it has like three huge acts that take you know, take part at three different times in Clark's uh, life. It was maybe because I didn't watch it as often as I did like Batman '89, which literally drops you into Batman's already Batman at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I you know it's so crazy that I never saw that movie at all growing up, like at all. Like I, I don't know how I missed it. Like every time I talk with other comic fans about that. I, I don't have an explanation. Somehow I just didn't see it <laughs> till like this year. Oh, really? I, I didn't know it yeah. was like this late. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because I, again, I just, I mean, I, I was just never like a, 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 a big fan. So I never really went back and saw that movie. I mean, you know, when you think about it, it is an older film. And so if you didn't grow up with it, you might not gravitate towards, towards that movie, you know? And with Batman 89, I mean, when when I was a kid, I mean, that movie was, like, relatively new. Mm. So this movie was a little older, and so it just, it, it was a little further away for me, I think. Right. And, at, like, after that, like, I, I, of course, like, how my, kind of my track of my, like, geekdom and, like, fan of comic book uh, culture is that, of course, I always, like you, I gravitate to Batman first and foremost, whether it be from... The Burton and Schumacher movies, the Batman cartoon in the 90s, as well as Mask of the Phantasm. <clears throat> and once that stopped and Superman began, that's why I was like, okay, I can <clears throat> I can gravitate towards it. Because it's like, it's very similar in, in the same regards, like, animation-wise. <coughs> I am dying here, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. I'm like, okay, I'm more of a Superman fan than I'm a Batman fan. And then Batman Begins came out. And then, like, then Batman Begins came out. I'm like, all right, nope, this is my first love, Batman, first and foremost. (laughs) I was very, I was very finicky because even after Superman, I became, that's when X-Men, X2, the first Spider-Man, and Spider-Man 2 all came out in very quick succession. So I Mm -hmm. got introduced to the Marvel movies, and I'm like, wow, this is really something. And even as a kid, I was like, Batman and Robin, I'm like, one of these things is not like the other three previous Batman movies. <laughs> Something's like it's still Batman. I still recognize it as Batman. I'm not gonna. I think it's one of the greatest unintentional comedies ever made. Some say it's completely intentional, but that's that's a topic for another day. And so I got back into Batman, and when Superman Returns came out, I'm like, oh, it's the same guy who did the first two X Men movies. Oh, sure, I'm all in for that. And watch that. I'm like, huh. This is uh, this is uh, hmm. Well, well, little disappointing. Superman Returns, but I don't know yeah. if you had, I don't know if you had a chance to see that since Man of Steel came out. Nope, I'm I'm telling you, man, I was completely out of the loop on the Superman stuff. 
Oh, that's fair. I mean, like, it's interesting because I remember one day since when Man of Steel came out on Blu-ray, my friend Mike and I, who was on, who I did the the thing review with, we did mm-hmm. an experiment. We watched Superman Returns and Man of Steel back to back just to see how our feelings were. And it was like at the time, like I kind of got swept up in the kind of negative feelings towards Man of Steel, and I'm like, oh well, Superman Returns is more of a Superman movie. But then upon reflection, I'm like, there's something more unique about Man of Steel. And when did you first hear a Man of Steel was being made in the first place? Um, so I didn't see Man of Steel at all until I, I guess a couple years ago. I, I didn't see it in theaters. I wasn't a huge comic book fan, I think, when that came out yet. <laughs> so I'm, like, very late to the game. No, that's fair. I mean, like, I mean, <laughs> no, because then it, cause I would, it's one of those things where you wish you can go back and re-experience things again for the first time. Yeah, and, yeah. And it's like, it's like a whole new world. Uh, cue the Aladdin song right now. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's kind of like... Uh, Two times of recently, this actually this year, I got a chance. Like, there's an independent theater here on Long Island that shows older movies uh, on 35 millimeter film. And since I'm a awesome. film, and I'm a film purist, so I go and support those kind of local promotions. Yeah. And one of them was uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, and there was definitely there was two women in front of me who had definitely had never seen it before, and so of course they knew about the shower scene because everybody knows kind of at least a part of the shower scene, so they were aware sure. of that. But there were other scenes that they were completely caught off guard by. And I'm like, oh, this is just as fun to watch their reaction just as much as the movie. And same thing with RoboCop. Like, it was two couples in front of me. And it's obviously the the men, like, obviously were fans of RoboCop and their girlfriends uh, had never seen it before. And so the first time somebody gets blown away into a million pieces by a robot, there's a shot, there's, like, look of horror on their faces. And I'm like, oh... I wish I had a chance. I wish this was my first experience seeing uh, <laughs> this in, in this environment specifically because it's such a warm um, community around it. And when it came to the first time I saw a, anything about Man of Steel is actually when The Dark Knight Rises came out. It was mm-hmm. my friend, my my girlfriend at the time, uh, my friend Dakota and his brother Zach. The four of us went to go see that The Dark Knight Rises triple feature mm-hmm. that they did. And I remember... Batman Begins comes on, and that's my favorite of the trilogy, so I was so happy. I was pumped. I was like, oh, this is so awesome. I get a chance to see it on the big screen again. Dark Knight came on, and then I had this weird feeling of motion sickness. And I was like, and I felt like crap for the entire movie. And I'm like, I like, oh, no. I couldn't really enjoy the Dark Knight. And then Dark Knight ends, I get up in the chair, and I'm shaky, and I, I walk down the stairs, and I get out to the lobby area, and I immediately throw up in the garbage can right outside. And Usher comes up to me, he's like, hey, are you okay? And I'm like, I lift my head up like, oh yeah, much better now. And I'm like, and I'm like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to get sick here. It's like, no, you made it all, you got all of it in the, the can. That's what I'm all happy about right now. It's so like, okay, cool. <laughs> so I went back into see Dark Knight Rises. I'm like, I'm not letting this stop me. I, I'm going to see the end of this trilogy. Wow, and, champ. Yeah, and then so the last preview they had, they showed. I think it's like the only preview they showed before Rises was the first teaser trailer for Man of Steel. And mm. there were heard rumblings there's a new Superman movie coming on, coming out next year. And then the trailer un, uh, unfolds using, like, the score from Lord of the Rings. And I watch it, and uh, in awe, the trailer comes to an end, and it goes black in the entire theater. It's quiet. And I immediately just yelled out, just like, fuck yeah! And just had <laughs> everybody just start cheering, because everybody was so pumped for it. 
And I was like, oh, I like, I cannot wait for it. And, but, so, I know you said you didn't see this movie in theaters. When did you first see it, uh, actually? It was just at home, or, like, was it, like, at a friend's house or anything, or? Yeah, so, so, again, I, I really let my perception of what, you know, just not ever having dove into the character a whole lot stop me from seeing it. And then the reviews were so mixed that I just didn't really ever see it. And, uh, you know, I saw the Nolan trilogy and I loved that, but I kind of elevated that comic book movie above other ones. You know, I, I wasn't huge into even a lot of the Marvel ones. I was kind of, you know, I was like superhero fatigue. I feel like there's so many movies out now. I can't keep up with all of them. So I didn't see this one and I just kind of assumed, oh, it was probably okay. It's whatever. And then like a couple years ago, uh, finally sat down and gave it a real shot. Um, you know, so many people try to convince me to watch it over and over again. And I was like, oh, it's about Superman. I, you know, I just, I, I'm not interested in his skill set. I'm not interested in his story arc. I just, I'm not going to enjoy this movie. Uh, and then I sat down and watched it and I was, I was pretty shocked <laughs> about how much I liked it and how much it dramatically changed how I viewed that character. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it, it was like, oh, this is completely different from what I thought. It made me want to go back, and it, it, it did make me go back and watch uh, other films and other and read about him more and learn about him more, and it just made me more interested. Oh, it, it, I think it's the best the best thing that could come out of a, any movie based upon other source material. It leads you to, it makes you want to fall down a rabbit hole and discover more about whatever the story came from. Right. And I mean, you know, I, I kind of touched on earlier that a lot of this comic books, you know, fandom stuff, it, it is relatively new for me. I mean, obviously, just like anybody else on this planet, I, <laughs> I grew up with these characters on about the same level everyone else did. But I wasn't like a huge fan, you know, and it's only been fairly recently that I started really reading a lot and getting really, really interested. And it was really exciting for me. Because, you know, when I was younger, I was a really big Trekkie, and then uh, then all the Harry Potter books came out in the movies, and I was really into that. And I was kind of searching for something to just be obsessed with. <laughs> and this sort of kind – I mean, there's it's impossible to run out of material when it comes to comics, you know? And it's impossible to run out of uh, new things to learn about, new things to read. So uh, my experience with – comics recently just it, it's been really great and this movie um is definitely a big part of that um so yeah and it also taught me to challenge myself in that you know you can have a preconceived notion about something about a story about a movie but sometimes it's really better to give that movie a shot yourself and see and make your own you know opinions on it yeah i mean like <clears throat> Recently, like, well, we had Spider-Man Homecoming that came out this year. Everybody was raving about it, and I went, I went, I'm like, all right, let me check it out and see how it is. And I did not think it was as hot as people said. But then again, I would said before, I was not in the best of moods when I saw it. So I was just very, I was, just very <laughs> I was very grouchy during the movie. Like, Michael Keaton blew me away. So was Tom Holland. Both of them crushed it. I'll never take that away from them. But near the end, like, the building's laying on top of Peter. I'm like, good. I hope the building crushes him. I was, just, I was a real grouch for that, and I... <laughs> and I'd be like, you know what? I think I should give it a second chance. I eventually will. Uh, but like you were saying, going to a comic book store, delving into comics, it's like, it's not like, oh, I'll, I'll run out of things to read. It's more like, okay, I need to stop 
picking up books right now because I yes. I'm like this is like I'm like this is a hundred this is at least a hundred dollars in my hand right now and I'm like this is going to be at least two months worth of reading so I think I should stop now. It's uh my my friend uh, Nikki I think I I took her to the comic book store recently and it's her first time going and she I'm like all right I should probably buy one or two books like I had my two books and then she had a stack. And it's just like, I just got paid. I'm like, I hope, like, if you're complaining that you can't pay your bills later, I don't want to hear any complaints right now. Right, because uh, you consistently every month will have to buy all those books. <laughs> exactly. And and, yeah. I, and especially in, like, um, if, you, if, you ha- if you're doing the ongoing or you just want to pick trades up as you go. Um, and when I first saw Man of Steel, I, it was kind of like uh, – it was a promotion when, because I used to work at Walmart, and they said like, "Oh, sign up for tickets." And I think this is, um, I was not working there anymore, but my friend still was, and he ended up uh, getting tickets for him, uh, a, another coworker of ours, uh, myself, and my girlfriend at the time. So the four of us went, and I kind of left a little bit on bad terms with some people there, and so we're all in line to go into this movie. So I was kind of like hiding my face a little, bit, like nobody recognized me. Let me just pull my baseball cap down. We get into the theater, movie's about to start, and problems with it. And it's like, all right, I'm not sure if they accidentally put like a 3D version of the movie on, and they or I forget what the exact technical issue was. So they said, all right, we'll move you to a different theater. So we end up getting the chance. To, we actually upgraded to an IMAX screening of. Oh, nice. Yeah, and so we're like, oh, okay, cool. We'll get to see it. Uh, and so if there's a movie to have a very visceral IMAX experience. It's it's definitely this movie. Which mm-hmm. we should probably yeah, get, I could definitely see that. Yeah, which which we probably should get into now. Um, now thinking about it, um, so I love how the movie opens up, and we have the Kryptonian fonts on the Warner Brothers logos. Warner Brothers is always cool about customizing their uh, opening logos. They do it for Harry Potter, mm-hmm. all the movies, and then we have Cal El's birth, and we have our Lion King moment when he cries. We see all the animals of Krypton react to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have Joel talking to the council saying, Hey, we're all going to die if we don't do something about this. And I've held this hope in my hand. And that's when Zod comes in and starts a ruckus and takes over, tries to have a coup d'etat on Krypton. how did you feel about the opening of this movie? And how did that grab you the first time you saw it? Uh, so it, it grabbed me right away and it made me realize something, um, about this movie that I didn't know. And it's that, you know, I, I had never – it sounds silly because obviously we know that Superman's an alien, but I had never approached it from that aspect before, I think. You know, again, just looking on it from the outside. But, I, you know, science fiction is one of my favorite genres, so the way that this opened up and telling it from that perspective really drew me in. I liked seeing uh, where he was from and learning about his people, and I found that – angle of him being you know the key to kind of restarting their civilization is going back to basics and actually having a natural birth i thought that was a really cool angle and yeah i really liked it yeah it's it's really unique because it full it i think snyder took their approach like we're doing a science fiction movie we're not really a comic book movie Right, exactly. And I think that that really sets it apart. And I think when I, you know, when I was younger and I'd watch the cartoon, I mean, they definitely touch on how he's born and all that. But I feel like you mostly see him, you know, either when he's young on the farm or 
when he's already Superman. So seeing that very beginning and then I think going more into his background and how he got there, I really like that about this movie. I, I felt like they approached it, I know, from a more realistic perspective, and some people don't like that sort of darker tone and more realism, but that's what made me like the character. So I really like it. Oh, totally. And I think it's a, one thing I have to, I, we probably, we talked about right here at the beginning is that if you look at Zack Snyder's filmography up until this point, that he has a very specific style, of how he does this, everything up until this point, a lot of his stuff is like, all right, it's nice, smooth tracking shots. We have the slow motion, the speed ramps, but obviously Snyder took his cues a lot from his producing partner with Christopher Nolan because there's a lot of mm-hmm. handheld camera work here. Yeah. Um, and like one of the other things is that that it seemed like it has a kind of like sure like there was a gritty realism to Watchmen, but there was there was definitely that's a stylized movie. For- yeah, you're right. It's it's a lot more stylized than this is. This feels more like a straightforward film than if you compared it to like you said Watchmen or even Three Hundred or you know. Oh yeah, and yeah, and if, I'm curious. Like, um, what do you think of like Russell Crowe's performance as well as Michael Shannon and as well as their interactions having that Michael Shannon Zod does not want to have this argument with Jor-El that he respects him and he wants him to be on his side and hopes that he would come to the same vision that he is. So I'm probably going to get heat for this. This is just my personal opinion, but I felt that they made. The, I guess because I just watched the Superman 2, you know, the original mm-hmm. uh, movie. I felt that in Man of Steel, his connection and his conflict with Zod was a lot more personal. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it starts right here. Like, there's to me, there's more of a connection between Zod and Jor-El than I saw in the older movies. Um, and so seeing this first, that's what I expected in the older movies since I saw them after this. I think that's a big strength of this movie because I feel that the conflict between them feels real. It feels personal. It feels like they were close and now they're not. And I don't know. I, I, I really think Michael Shannon stands out a lot in this movie for me. I think he does a really, really good job uh, playing Zod. He's, I think he's, it's one of the stronger villains I've seen in some of these superhero movies and I like Russell Crowe's performance. And uh, who, who's the actress that plays his mother? Oh, I have it pulled up. I don't, yeah. Right okay. here. I, I thought they were both great. They had this sort of, you know, it was science fiction, but it was also sort of like a medieval king and queen kind of quality. I thought, you know, because of their, the way that their costumes were styled, it was like sort of somewhere in between that. And I, I just really liked how they played with that look, you know, and their performance styles. I, I thought it was really good. Um, the, the actress that plays um, Cal's mother, I, I'm going to butcher her name, but Aylet <laughs> uh, Zurier, like A-Y-E-L-E-T-Z-U-R-E-R. So, gotcha. Okay. Um, and I think, and I love that moment, like after, a little bit, we'll jump a little bit, a little head here, that after... After, like, uh, Zod premieres arrest uh, Jor-El, Jor-El, of course, is Russell Crowe. He's not going to go down without a fight. Um, sure. And, not, uh, and kicks the crap out of uh, uh, Zod's men. And then he, we have this – I love that this one one shot that always, like, when it comes to – if I'm going to think about certain images from this movie, it's when 
Russell Crowe comes from out from the, I guess, the Citadel, and he runs out to the platform while the coup d'etat is happening on Krypton. And it's that camera shot that he walks in the background, we pan with him, and then all of a sudden he's in the foreground, and in the background we have the battle going on as mm-hmm. all of the ships are attacking each other. And Russell Crowe jumps on the dragonfly, and he flies to grab the Codex because he believes he can save Krypton's future by having the access to all the DNA uh, I guess the all the DNAs that that can be the of the families can be made, mm-hmm. and then when we get back to the uh, the House of L, and we have uh, Laura kind of like question like I don't know if we should do this because she just had her child, yeah, and now she has to give him up. I, I know it's for the I guess it's for the greater good if we're going to put that in quotations, but it's still her child and it's her. It's a natural birth, the first one in generations, and, and it must be tough for her. It must be almost impossible to make that decision. Yeah, I, I felt for her when she said, you know, it's different now that he's here. It, I don't know. I, I really liked the interaction with the parents. And like you said, I thought that scene was really awesome when he, when he jumps off and lands on that, on that dragon, um, or dragonfly, sorry. Uh, I thought that the the whole world looked really, really interesting, and it made me, like, want an entire movie of Krypton. <laughs> it, like, right away, you know, just from that from that quick scene. I mean, like, so much so that people have been talking about that, that we're actually getting a Krypton TV show, apparently. Yeah, yeah, that's what I hear. <laughs> Which, I, I'm, like, I'm like, cool and everything. I mean, set with Cal's grandfather, I'm like, all right, what's the conflict going to be? I don't know, so I, I'm skeptical, but I will give it a shot. And yeah. Especially if it's like, if it involves this world, I'll I'll be for it. And uh, I do find it interesting that we see the Genesis Chamber of all, like, the the offspring of Kryptonians being made. And it just reminded me of the Matrix a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, like, so maybe you could explain this <laughs> to me since I'm, again, the newbie. So they're pulling all this DNA. It felt like, wh- what was the symbolism of, like, that one skull and, like, how everything's being pulled from it? It seemed like it was breaking down because they're not having natural births, and so they're just re-cloning over and over. Is that what's happening with that? Yeah, and I guess, like, what, I, I guess it kind of feeds into the fact that they're, creativity and their exploration has been stunted because of that, because of natural birth has kind of been outlawed for this kind of factory based assembly line, um, procreation. And so, and so, and and kind of, and as well as the whole, the whole concept, but one of the big themes, I guess you could say about this movie is free will versus destiny. Sure. Yeah. And it's like very like Atlantean, right. Or, you know, like the lost city of Atlantis. It's like, uh, they, it, it reminds me of a lot of science fiction stories that will include that idea that they like got really advanced and then they had to start over um, because they got too advanced. To me, that's kind of what this feels like. Like they they got create or you know they got uh, procreation so perfect it's actually breaking down their society. Oh yeah. It's like instead of technology, it's it's this maybe technology a little bit too, but it's just kind of a sign that they're. Society is getting uh, is is starting to break down, and it's interesting because I remember when I took an archaeology class when I was uh, when I was at college, and we were talking about the first um, the first like the first like cre- uh, species that would de- eventually develop into Homo sapiens, and I, I can't remember the name of the skull, but it looks very similar to how 
the Codex Skull is designed. And so mm-hmm. watching this in retrospect, I'm like, oh, okay, that's probably where they kind of pulled that idea from. And that, of course, like it's kind of like, oh, this is a precursor to how Kryptonians are today, kind of like how humans are from based upon uh, early, uh, like Neanderthals and etc. And mm-hmm. so Jor-El gets back to the House of El and they decide to like, all right, we have to do this despite everything. And they find out the atmosphere for Earth is going to be very, it's going to be very complimentary to Cal's uh, DNA and he'll become a god pretty much on Earth because of the yellow sun. Uh, yeah, so- I like all that explanation. I mean, I, it just, again, it, it makes you view the story like a little bit differently. And maybe that's all in the comics too, but for me, it really, breaking it down that way, made it seem less like superpowers and more just like biology, I guess. I, I really liked it. Yeah, and I think, like, I know that definitely there are people who are fans of this material in the beginning with who'll probably just, like, roll their eyes, like, okay, it's kind of like the joke. Like, we, <laughs> like it's kind of like, all right, we know how Batman gets his powers. We know well, his powers, but we know how why he became Batman. We know how Spider-Man became Spider-Man. But for somebody like you, who's coming into it very first time, it's I think it's good that they are able to take their steps because it involves not just – they're not playing to – just the fans, they're willing to accept as many people as they want into this world. Yeah, you know, I understand on a certain level uh, critics of this film that like the more, I guess, happy, upbeat Superman, uh, the connection he has with Lois, and, you know, focusing more on that. But for me, just as a, a movie watcher, that's this this kind of story is something that's a little bit more my speed, and I just have all those questions and thoughts in my mind when I'm watching it. So I, I like that they take the time to explain it because I, I would be thinking about it. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, it could have easily just been like, all right, everybody knows the origin. We'll just go right into it, and you would just be like, wait, wait, what does that mean? What is that? Like, uh, 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 all right, I guess I'll go with this and be yeah, and it'd be immediately put um, at arm's length from the movie because you're not being kind of invited into this lore. And then we have Zod come in. Uh, Drell and Zod come uh, come to blows, where uh, Laura uh, Laura uh, launches the ship. Zod kills Drell. The coup is overthrown, and then that uh, Zod and his uh, military are banished to the Phantom Zone. And Zod swears he will find Kal El no matter what. He swears it, and it became, like, that's probably one of the benchmarks of those first, like, promotional trailers was having him scream, like, I will find him. Mm-hmm. And then he gets turned into an H.I. Giger kind of capsule that <laughs> looks very phallic, and he gets sent to the Phantom Zone. Yeah. Very Even, alien. Yeah, very alien. And, like, the first time I'm watching it, I'm like, I lean over to my buddy Mike, and I'm like, that looks very, is that what I think it is? like, I think so. I'm like, wow. That's that's insult injury. You're not going to prison. You're not just going to prison. You're going into prison in that uh, pod. Wow, <laughs> it is very vindictive. Uh, Kryptonians didn't know that, <laughs> and so they're sent to the fam zone, and that's when Krypton finally explodes, and Laura kind of just accepts her faith, uh, fate, uh, and then planet blows up, and that's when we see the ship come into our solar system and land on Earth, and we immediately cut to adults. Kal-El or Clark now on a on a boat and he's got a beard that looks very much like my friend Chris always says he looks like Kenny Loggins with that beard I just feel like he should be saying <laughs> danger zone as, as he's a fisherman 
And this is very different because just like in Superman the movie, it opens up where like, we see him, we see the destruction of Krypton, we see the trip to Earth, we see him grow up as a kid, high school and everything. And this movie, it, it swerves and it kind of, since this is written by David S. Goyer, who co-wrote Batman Begins, which told its movie in a non-linear fashion for at least the first act, it does a very similar thing. Like some people say, oh, it's Superman. It's, it's Superman Begins because of how the structure is, is laid out. Mm-hmm. When it jumped forward and we see him on the boat as an adult, how did you feel at, at that point? Um, let's see. Let me think about this question. Uh, how did I feel? <laughs> uh, I, I was I was excited. I do like when they don't stick with that linear fashion. For me, I like when they jump around because I think you have an opportunity for bigger emotional beats. You know, when you can kind of flash forward and then flash back and connect the two dots. So I, I, I like this scene and plus it's just exciting. Um, so yeah, that's how I feel about it. Nice. <laughs> Does that answer your question? I no, hope? Oh yeah. I, 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 <laughs> okay. Cause I feel like, because I could just keep going on and on. I don't want to leave you just like, yeah, yeah. Oh, no. Say, oh, yeah. And like, no, you no, to, you're by, good. Okay. If you want to inter- interrupt me by all means. Um, okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> no worries. And then I just don't get a word for the rest of the show. You just take over. <laughs> I've been known to do that, but. <laughs> <laughs> and so then we, we, we find out there's an oil rig on fire nearby. The boat is like, is close by. And they say like, the captain's like, all right, uh, Greenhorn, which is the nickname they've been giving to Clark. Have your binoculars, but he's gone. He's already on the oil rig because there's people still trapped on board, goes on board and saves them by a, breaking them out of the room that they're trapped in. It's, and then when the Coast Guard is getting them on a helicopter off the the rig itself, one of the towers is going to fall and crush the helicopter. Clark jumps, and we get to see the first uh, test of his strength, being able to hold up this tower while the helicopter pulls away. It eventually collapses, and he falls into the water. And I love, like, the the science behind it, that we see the, the metal around him warp. Mm-hmm. Because of his strength, yeah, and it wouldn't just be solid and everything. Like, it, it, despite like, all right, that that it's contouring in a certain way that shouldn't be because like it should, was not designed for that. And it's like those little details I really enjoy. And after that, we of course like he falls in the water. We see like whales around him, and of course, this is where it started the theory like, oh, this is how Aquaman knows of Superman because he saved him at this point. And I'm oh, cu- I hadn't heard that. Yeah, and even, like, Jason Momoa is kind of, uh, I think, like, he even said that recently, like, and I think I saw that news, like, uh, earlier today. Like, yeah, that fan theory sounds valid. And I'm like, I wonder if that, it, like, that's something that just came about, and they're like, yeah, we could pay that off, even though we wouldn't think of it as a setup. <laughs> yeah, who knows? But I, I think that you're right. This This first scene with him, I guess, displaying his Superman abilities... Because uh, you kind of heard about them from his parents explaining, you know, how he's going to be impacted by Earth and how that's going to, I guess, increase his strength and abilities. But I think it's cool to, like, right off the bat see him do something extremely heroic. Um, and you you have all these questions in your mind. Why does he have this beard? Why is Why are they calling him? Well, it's a nickname, but it's like you get the feeling that he's kind of hiding and then it sort of takes off from there. I mean, that's kind of what what stuck with me from that scene. Oh yeah, and then like it's not like like why isn't he working at the Daily Planet? And you you have right. all these, you have all these questions, which is a line in this movie. Like I have so many questions, 
<laughs> and so, and of course, the movie respects the audience that they, and it does pay off every question that you have. Right. And so after this, we get to see one of the first flashbacks when he's a little kid, and when his powers start to really come to fruition, he starts seeing X-ray vision of everybody, which freak an adult out, let alone a child. Yeah, I thought I really like this part of the movie a lot, where he's overwhelmed by all by all that, and then. Uh, you know, the other kids call him a freak and he's in that closet and they call his mother and his mother, you know, tells him he's special and that, uh, you know, he's just different. And I mean, all that stuff really resonates with the audience because almost everybody has had an experience like that. And, uh, you know, I think that they do a really good job in this movie of making you connect with Clark and, and see that even though he's superhuman, even though he has all these abilities you know, his life is filled with a lot of, you know, difficulty and tragedy and fitting in. And, like, I, I just really like the way that they told that story. I thought it was really uh, personal. And, and I love how they set up such a great relationship between him and his mother in just one yeah. quick scene. Right. I mean, it, is, it doesn't hurt that you have Diane Lane acting as uh, Martha, so... Right, she's adorable. I mean, she's so sweet. She's, she comes across so genuine, like a real mom, you know, and very, very loving. And, and I love how, like, she, like, she's running, and she's kind of like how every mother would probably be. She's kind of a little, a little frazzled, and she's like, yeah. like trying to have herself look a little presentable for the teacher and the other kids, but it's like, it really doesn't matter because she immediately just, she wants to talk to her son and make him feel comfortable and feel safe. And I just love that moment where it's like, the, the world's too big, Mom. is says, well, make it small. And show, giving him the chance to have that he has so much power. And it makes that kind of relatable for the for, for her son. And then after that, we cut, to, we cut back to adult Clark Kent. And we have probably Henry Cavill in probably the best shape of his life. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm just, I'm just saying, I like, I like, I am a straight man, but like, he is a good-looking man. I'll never deny that. And, and I love how somebody, somebody, I saw somebody get shitty. Like, he stole somebody's clothes. I'm like, really? You're gonna get on his, <laughs> his ass about that? And he stole socks. <laughs> I, I mean, this, this is ridiculous. Yeah, no, I didn't have that concern watching that scene. <laughs> yeah, of course not. I, I mean, you get the you get the idea that he's. I, I think they have that scene because he's he's incognito right now, and he's he's kind of. On the run for some reason, we don't know what that is yet. Yeah, because I mean, I think yeah. I, I presume that's probably after the oil rig, and people are going to have some questions about like, how did one dude who was on a fishing boat nearby just be able to hold up a tower like that? I mean, that's that I think that would be newsworthy, and of course, he has to go into hiding yet again. Mm -hmm. and, and he sees a school bus, which transitions into our next scene where we see uh, younger Clark Kent. Um, being bullied, and I actually had a very interesting experience when it came to this scene specifically, uh, because I saw this movie twice in theaters. The second time I saw it in theaters, it was my friends, uh, with my friends Justin, Chris, and I, and there's like really annoying, uh, like I guess like preteen like kind of girls sitting behind us, like speaking at you and I, like like that's how loud they were talking. <laughs> And they're like kind of kicking the seats a little bit, and I'm just getting like I'm just getting angrier and angrier. And I just wanted to, like to yell at them. I was a moments away from yelling at them, but it's as soon as when like the bully makes that like one last comment, and then the bus uh, tire pops and it goes off the bridge. It caught the kids behind me off guard, and they immediately shut up after that. 
And so, like, on the inside, they're like, oh, yeah, that's what you get for talking in the movie theater. You get shot. You get scared like that. <laughs> um, and then we, so, Bush goes into water. It's sinking. No, the kids can't get out. And so Clark pushes the bus out of the pushes the bus out of the water and saves everybody, including the bully. Um, what did you think about this scene? So I really, really liked it. I thought that it was genuinely chilling when the uh, when the bus goes into the water. Uh, you know, with the whole scene where he crashes and then it goes over and. Um, you know, all the children are so afraid and so scary. And then Clark has to make that decision. Does he save them? Does he not? And he's, uh, he knows he's probably not supposed to, but he immediately springs into action, gets the, the, uh, bus out of the water. And I think, uh, Lana Lane sees him do that for sure. Like she's watching him when he's pulling the bus or pushing it out of the water. She sees him pushing it. And then, and then of course he pulls the bully out of the water too, and so that, you know, that those two characters you see again throughout the movie, um, because they see him differently now based on this, uh, based on this one scene, I thought, I thought it was really good. Um, I just liked how it was shot. It was really jarring. And then when he saved them, it was just really, really awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, I always felt like whenever I rode the school bus, like when you have like the windows, like those windows are not going to open when I really need them to. I never felt like I never felt safe whenever he had like drills, and then seeing this, I'm like you know what, you know, I'm validated myself. Like those windows would not have opened in in a crisis. So, mm-hmm. um, and it, and I love that moment where like it's just like the water is like that one shot like on like land looking at over the water. We just see the bus slowly get pushed up onto land, and we see yeah. and we see Cal behind him and. He makes eye contact with Lon Lane, and he almost seems like he's saying, like, don't, like within a, with a look, saying, please don't say anything. And Lon Lane doesn't say anything, uh, but it's obviously, like, the bully's family, the mother, who confronts uh, Clark's parents about this. And it goes into the first of, I guess you would say, the first controversial scene in this movie, because there are several. Yep. Yeah, yeah. This is controversial, I think, because... I, I did have a little bit of trouble with the scene. I know me and uh, my husband, Nick, we're kind of going back and forth about our viewpoints on it. I, It's like th- there's a really big criticism from a lot of people about uh, Pa Kent in this movie in general, right? I mean, and how he treats Clark and how he his relationship with him um, because he, he's definitely playing it a lot more stoic and just kind of like old old school dad. And uh, I think that his reaction about, you know, just immediately coming down on him for doing that, you know, I, I, I did out loud say, well, what else was he going to do? I mean, it's impossible, right? If he if he goes down in the school bus, there's no way he's going to let all his friends drown. It's impossible. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, I understand what his dad is saying about he needs to keep it under wraps. But I do sort of question this one part of the movie. Like, I don't know. I, I just feel like if he had put it in a different way or something, um, I know he's scared for his son and I know that he loves his son and, and all that, but a whole bus full of kids, Paul Kent, come on. I don't know. How do you feel about it? I feel like one line of dialogue could have alleviated this, all those problems. When Clark asks, like, what should I do? Let him die. And Paul Kent says, maybe, I don't know. If he said, I don't know, and, like, showed that he was really conflicted about that, 
I think that would have alleviated so many problems in this scene. Right. Because I think you you know as a human being, he's definitely conflicted. There's no way as a parent he's not conflicted. <laughs> right? I mean, I think he knows Clark had no other choice. And he's probably just emotionally charged from talking to the bully's parents, you know, talking to his mom. Um, that's probably why he, he suddenly gets so upset. Uh, he's, he's speaking from a place of emotion, but... For the audience, it, it is it does play off a little weird, because it's like yeah you, you know he, it, it makes him seem like an extreme parent like yeah you know no matter what keep your secret even if an entire bus full of kids drown I don't know it just I, I agree with you I think they could have fixed it with a line of dialogue but I don't view that character going forward as like this horrible dad at all I do want to say that I want to stress that I think I think the way that uh, that that character is portrayed is a little more realistic. But and he's, you know, in the South and he's like an old school, older dad. And so he's not super emotional. He's not. But he loves his son. And I think they have a real connection. And I think he's just more reserved and more nervous than what we're used to seeing with his father. But I don't think he's like a cruel, unfeeling dad. You know, he's not like, yes, son, let them die. Yeah, I don't. I I didn't get that from that scene. I agree, it plays off a little awkwardly. I agree, it could have been said better, but it did not make me hate his dad. You no. know, and I feel like this. Uh, this is obviously this movie's universe is of the talk because mm-hmm. after this, mm-hmm. because they had that moment of where he reveals to his son like why he's able to do the things he he does because he shows him the scout ship or the the pod that Clark came in and that. The little, I guess, the insignia that has the, the, the um, what was it, the memories of that Jor-El are on. And he says, like, yeah, you're from another planet. You're the answer to the uh, question, are we alone in the universe? And I, I, I know how that scene, like the previous scene, has gets a lot of flack, but I absolutely love this scene. It's just, too, it's one exchange. It always gets me. I always, I'm watching it. I watched it tonight. I got, I got teary-eyed because... Clark says, like, can't I just pretend that I'm, that I'm your son? And Pa says, you are my son, and hugs him. I mean... Yeah, he really loves him a lot. I mean, they see him as, as a blessing that came out of the sky, literally. Like, I... And I like that scene, too, because, again, they're playing to that science fiction angle. You know, you're the answer to Are We Alone in the Universe? And then his reaction to that is very... Uh, for lack of a better word, human. And again, I feel like they're they're helping us connect with this character so much, seeing it from his perspective of how hard it must be to be so different, even if being different is a good thing. Oh, totally. And I, I, I immediately, like, because my dad was home before he, like, actually went out. I just paused the movie and I just went to go talk to my dad because I just wanted to, like, just that uh, a raw emotion moment. Like I need to, I need to talk to my dad somehow. I, I just need like whatever it is. Cause I just need to have that moment. Like, I didn't say anything to him. Like in context, what, what the movie I was watching was like, I just need to have that moment. Um, and it's like the joke I, like I made, um, before it's kind of like, whenever I think of that moment, I think of the afterwards, it's like that scene from like Anchorman with Will Ferrell in the phone booth crying and saying, I'm in a glass <laughs> case of emotion. That's how I feel. When I think about that scene. Um, afterwards we cut back to a, a adult uh, Clark on just being a drifter as he is. We see him. He's working as like a, I wouldn't say a bartender. I guess he'd be a bar hop. 
And yeah, it seemed like he was bussing tables or something. Yeah, it didn't seem like he was waiting on people or a bartender. I agree. Yeah, because he had an apron and on and everything. And he overhears that there is a weird ship in, I, I believe they're, I guess they're in Canada or, or, or maybe they're in last, like, because they meant, the soldiers have mentioned the Americans are there, so it's obviously we're not in America at this point. Mm-hmm. And he overhears the, uh, afterwards he overhears a, a, Waitress uh, being harassed by one of the truckers who just came in, who, because Clark can't help but do the right thing, says, like, hey, stop this, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. And the, the dude provokes him, and he pours his beer on him. And it's like, oh, dude, like, as an audience, you know, like, what this man can do, and it is waiting for we'll see what Clark's going to do. Yeah, and plus it's really calling back, again, to Superman 2, right? I feel like a lot of this movie does. Oh, totally, and it's like, yeah. no, like, here, you, you want to step outside, and or see like Christopher Reeves like get thrown down like the uh, the whole bar and get beaten up. But mm-hmm. I love that moment where the dude goes to shove Clark, and it has no effect on him. It just he just bounces off <laughs> yeah. of him. And you could tell he's really unsettled by that, but he's just like, whatever. It's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of grandstanding. Yeah, and of course Clark does the he takes the high road and leaves. And the dude does a chicken shit thing by throwing something while his back is turned. And I'm like, oh, come on, man. And then, of course, afterwards, the dude, the the guy who started the trouble, goes outside and sees his truck impaled by the logs that he was that he was dragging in. So and, what do you think of that scene? Is that controversial right there that Superman would do that? Do I, think? I don't think so because I feel like, dude was kind of a prick. I mean, sure, you kind of mess with his livelihood, but I'm sure he's insured. I mean, he's awful, and he that may not have been the first time he did that. You know, like, this could be several times. I personally have no problem with it, but I just wondered, like, do Superman fans have a problem with that? Oh, Superman fans, of course. I mean, it's kind of like the joke is, like, say, to make a a parallel, is like, uh, the band Metallica. Nobody hates Metallica more than Metallica fans. Like they'll always find something <laughs> to be angry about. So of course they're going to find something to be angry about this scene. But this is not Superman yet. The whole movie is this journey to becoming Superman. I agree. Yeah, and I think that's why, to me, he has permission to make mistakes, to be hot-headed, to be angry. Because it, I think this movie, BVS, and then. When Justice League comes out, we're going to see him become the Superman from the comics, essentially. Like, he's getting there, and they're letting him get there slowly. And I I prefer that. I like that. I, I don't think you would just wake up one day and be an alien and be like, well, that's fine. I love me, and I think I'm doing great. You know, like, I, I think it's great that he goes through this journey. Yeah, I mean, like, they like people say, like, in the first Superman movie, of course, he had all of his values and everything instilled in him. Like, yes, he did. Sure, yeah, he but, definitely did. But he was at the Forces of Solitude for 13 years. Mm-hmm. So, and learning and under the tutelage of, of Jor-El. So, of course, he was very more adept. He was definitely more in control of his powers and knew what his destiny or what his what he knew was right to do. I mean, obviously, this, this movie is the journey of that. And like you said, I think... He does not become Superman until the end of BVS. Yeah, with the sacrifice. I even, yeah, and I we'll get there when we get to the scene. But I have a real big problem with people being upset as as to how this movie ends. I know we'll get there, but yeah, it's like 
he doesn't even like really become Superman until that part of the movie. So of course, anyway, I don't want to jump too much ahead. We'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I I think that his behavior in this scene is I I mean it, it's super risky for him to in, impale that truck and do what he did. But I think they're just showing you that he's human uh, again, for lack of a better term um, that he had, that he's complex, that he has emotions and that he got hot headed and angry in that scene. Um, and you're starting to see him be, I guess, more proactive and maybe less in the shadows, like slowly, you know, he's getting there. He's getting close to being able to towards the end of the movie, put on that suit and do heroic things and do things in front of people. Right. I mean, like, anybody who has a problem with that scene, I will turn to them and say, you've never punched a wall or wanted to do something like that when you were angry? And, yeah. and if, imagine you had his his power set. Right. And and I like it because it's it's conflict. I mean, it's it's he's struggling personally with what he can and can't do. What situations can he stand up for himself in and which ones he can't? Like, that's his struggle, and I, I like, I want to see that, you know? I want to see him get there. If he ends up becoming the bigger man and, you know, always taking, you know, turning the other cheek, then I want to see him get there. Right. And so afterwards we cut to a ship that we found that was in the ice that they believe to be alien. And we're introduced to Amy Adams playing Lois Lane. Mm-hmm. What do you think of, especially this introduction and Amy Adams' portrayal overall in this movie? So I'm going to be honest with you. I think I had to see her portrayal a couple times to really form an opinion because seeing this compared to the Lois Lane of, say, the original movie and even in the original cartoon, uh, she she's more – she's not meek and mild, but she's not as, like, brash as, like, brazen, as uh, – bold I, I don't know how else to put it but she's definitely playing it different i mean she's playing it like amy adams yeah like she's amy adams as lois like <laughs> uh so i kind of thought i don't know it took me a while to come around to to liking this version of her um i love amy adams i think she's an incredible actress but you know you're just used to seeing her be a little bit more like i said bold brazen um and then also this idea that she meets him this way first before working at, uh, oh my gosh, it just left my brain. Oh my gosh. Daily Planet? (laughs) Yes, thank you. No problem. (laughs) That always happens to me. It's because we're recording. Yeah, no. Yeah. So, so when she, uh, so yeah, we're introduced to her this way before they start working together at the Daily Planet. I, I guess all that kind of threw me at first. Which is totally because like you, because we've been so trained to know like oh she's introduced to superman first and then clark Kent, and so yeah and it's like even not seeing that movie it's hard to to not know that culturally you know i i think that's just what i thought it was going to be like and then also uh but she's being extremely like brave and uh you know charging like that part where she's like climbing into the, I was like, you don't even have any equipment. What are you doing? Like yeah. <laughs> she could fall. Like it's very, very risky. And she does it at night. You're just like, I mean, it does introduce you to the, to a character that takes a lot of risks. And I think that's one good thing that they've always done with Lois Lane. She's definitely not just a damsel in distress. She's very proactive. And uh, so I think, 
as the movie goes on, I, I sort of make peace with this different telling of how they met. Yes, and it's cool because, like you said, when we see, because she she goes out at one point testing out a camera, testing out a lens, and she sees that Clark is using his heat, uh, heat vision or his laser vision, depending on which way you want to classify it, into the ice to go into the scout ship that's under the ice. So she follows him in and immediately runs into, I guess, the, well, I guess, I, I guess you'd say, like, almost like a drone or a guard of the ship that attacks her and where Clark comes in for the first time to save her. And I love this moment here where, like, despite the fact that she's been burned and, and she's been injured, that he immediately puts her, like, almost at ease. And I think that's just Henry Cavill's performance in that moment where, like, right. as an audience, like, all right, he's obviously going to take care of her and he has to cauterize the wound and obviously that hurts. But then that one encounter starts on this journey that continues throughout the rest of the movie, which I think is really cool. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, giant guy pinning you down, telling you he's going to help you by burning you kind of scary, but somehow Henry Cavill, uh, is convincing in, in, in calming her down and, and, and they create like a connection pretty quickly. I think, I think it's really believable, which is like you said, I think a testament to his performance. Yeah, because I feel like he's just one of the most charismatic people on the earth. He can't help right. but, I mean, like, watching The Man from Uncle, and mm-hmm. five minutes into the movie, I'm like, I want him to play James Bond. Like, I, that's how charismatic I thought he was in that movie. I agree. And so, the scout ship's gone, and that's when Lois decides to start her own journey and find out who this man was and where he, where did he come from. As Clark decides to find out more about his own personal history by plugging in the, I guess the, oh, I forget the name, like the key, the cryptic, like the House of El Key, and we see the projection of Jor-El, and we get this Kryptonian history. Now, exposition is necessary for all stories, especially for science fiction. How do you think they handled the backstory of Krypton in this, this I forget what they call it, like the geo like liquid geo kind of cyclorama that's going on around them i loved it i mean i i'm never upset when i see something like that though i think i'm pretty i'm pretty biased i, I feel like if you look at a lot of movies i like they do have a lot of exposition yes. <laughs> so i think when it's done well i really appreciate it and i think that this movie does it really well yeah it, it's visually interesting um what they're talking about is interesting we got a break because you know, they showed us a little bit of the of Kryptonian history in the beginning, and then they showed again here. Um, I guess my only question that I had while watching it, though, was I was like, so there's only one general for the whole planet? Is that just because their race has dwindled down to so few? That's a good question. I mean... <laughs> I just wondered. I'm like... And also, I, I liked it, too, though, because I felt that it left it open-ended because they said that everyone abandoned their posts and they came back. But did they? I mean, you could leave it open for later, even though... And, and of course, they do that all the time with comics anyway, right? But um, even though Krypton was destroyed, I mean, it's possible that some people would still be on some of those outposts somewhere. So I like... I like that setup. I feel like it really left things open-ended for, for future movies. Right. And I, the one thing that, like, one of the biggest questions I have with this movie, even to this day, that during, going back to the beginning of the movie, where one of the council members asked Jor-El, do you expect us to uh, evacuate the entire planet and go live on one of these outposts, presumably? 
And he's like, no, everybody on this planet is dead. But I'm like, really? It seems like some time has gone by. You could have evacuated people. This is not the Titanic. You're sinking, yes, but you could have had some time. That's one of the questions I've never been like, are they just so used to that atmosphere that they couldn't live somewhere else? I, this is, and, yeah. And you're like, there's no other Kryptonians out there. Of course, if... And, like, there's there always there's a little bit of a theory here that in the scout ship there's one pod empty. So people jump to the conclusion, like, oh, that's Supergirl. And then Supergirl's been on Earth at, for a long time, even before Kal-El. So there is plenty of possibilities of what could happen because of they left things slightly vague. Yeah, okay, another weird question about the timeline, and maybe I just heard this wrong, but when they talk about that ship being in the ice... Don't they say it's been there for thousands of years or something? Like, how? I don't understand that part of the movie. Yeah, I presume that, obviously, Krypton was a society eons before Earth became pretty much controlled by humanity. That we, that the Kryptonians had landed on Earth at one point, And, I guess, they never set up shop. And just how Earth usually does, it just takes over and just grows around it. And where they landed, I guess, is where, uh, I guess, a glacier or it just concealed in ice. Okay, so, like, the ship is un- not truly connected to the Krypton we just saw that just got destroyed. No. So it's, okay, okay. It's from, like, it's just the, implying that they did it a long time ago. Okay, okay. Yeah. I've just, only seen this movie, like, three times, I think, so I, I always get a little confused at that part. Okay, I get it. Gotcha. Um, and so then we see... And a lot of people complain, like, because Jor-El shows him to a pod that opens up and has Superman suit. And, like, how did it make like that? How is it built in there? I'm like, geniuses. They, he plugged in his own key. That's, and his sense memories and everything. His father probably designed that based upon the technology that's in there. Like, that's something yeah, like... Yeah, that doesn't like, really throw me. <laughs> I mean, there's all this technology we know nothing about, so I don't know. Use yeah. your imagination. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, like, but, like... Really, like, I have questions, like, is this the, really the hill you're willing to die on? Okay. Um, and we get into the first, like, of kind of, like, some, at least fans were kind of, like, judged as, like, certain sequences of the DC films, of these DC films, that become benchmarks for them and define them. Like, it would be Clark learning to fly here. It's the Martha rescue scene in BBS. In Suicide mm-hmm. Squad, it could be the very end when they all team up, or when Deadshot jumps on the car and he starts blowing people away left and right and saves the whole platoon, or it's the No Man's Land sequence in Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that when Clark learns to fly, it, it harkens back to early comics because he's just leaping, and how early Superman comes, he could just leap a tall building in a single bound rather than flying. Right, yeah. It's really cool scene. I like the way they do his flying, like the sound and the force of it. It's I, really great. And I love like he, he immediately gets in the air. He thinks he's got it and crashes right into a mountain. <laughs> yep. Um, and I just love that moment. He's like, he's smiling. He's got it. And just, uh-oh. And, uh, and it's like how anybody else, any person who's learned to ride a bike or a skateboard who thinks they, they've got it for the first time, of course, they immediately fall. Yeah, again, like, having you connect with this character, he's got these incredible powers, but there's limits, and he's learning, and I think letting us see that, him go through all that, helps us connect with him a lot more. Oh, totally, and then 
So he learns to fly, and we have that moment where you see him flying around the world, and we kind of have like a kind of like a callback to the first Superman movie where we have right him and it's like the shot from the atmosphere. He comes out, flies by the camera, and flies away. And I always thought that was a nice little callback. Yeah. Um, and then, so then we we see Lois conducting her story and her investigation, going from place to place wherever Clark went, tracking him down to Smallville. And meeting up with Martha, who points in the direction of the cemetery, and that's where Clark is hiding. That's where Clark is hiding out. And I'm like, I even as a joke, I made like, is he just a groundskeeper here now? Because he looks like <laughs> he's just a grave digger. <laughs> and so we get to our next controversial scene: the tornado oh sequence. Yeah. I'll let you take yeah. the lead on this one. Uh <laughs> I don't know. Like it's. <laughs> <laughs> why I, I guess I still don't really understand the logic behind why he had to let him die. I don't really get it. <laughs> uh, I don't think he had to. I just don't. I feel like you have permission in this one instance to save your dad. And I do think it's another opportunity for the audience to sort of turn on Pa Kent again. It's like, man, he really puts him through the ringer with these tests, you know? <laughs> oh, it's, uh, it's, I mean, the whole point of, I guess, the movie is, like, him making a decision, choosing to be Superman. Mm-hmm. And then this moment, he chooses not to be. He chooses just to be Clark Kent and not use his powers based upon his dad's wishes. Right. I mean, it's only confounded because they, because you have the moment before where they're in the car, we have that scene where, you're not my real dad moment. And it's like, oh, geez. Just yeah, salt just, in the wound. <laughs> yeah, and, even watching it this time, I'm like, oh, maybe it's because I know what's coming. I'm like, oh, no. Don't have this. <laughs> please don't have his argument. And, and, of course, he does not get a chance to reconcile. And for me, like, oh, I understand wanting to differentiate yourself from the original Superman series. And I, I really get the feeling that because Superman Returns, Brian Singer's Superman Returns was so adherent to Dick Donner's first two Superman movies, mm-hmm. I feel like one of, the, one of the prerequisites to make this movie is like, all right, we're going to do something completely different from that series of Superman movies. And so this is probably just another opportunity. Instead of Pa Kent dying of a heart attack where he couldn't save him, even if he tried, what if we did this? And like, Yeah. Ooh. I feel like it has more emotional beats if he dies of a heart attack because... Yeah, that's, like, something Superman can't help with. Like, I, I think I would have preferred that. Yeah, and I feel like... and Because I, I, I love that moment in the first Superman. It's like, all my powers, and I still couldn't save him. Yeah. Yeah, I just played better. I don't know. Ah. And so... And, of course, people are saying, like, why would the dog get out of the car first? And why would you go back to the dog? <laughs> I'm like, ah. It's like, ah. I mean, one of the things when I did my... when. I did my review of Dawn of the Dead with Andy DiGenova. We brought up the fact that the Zack Snyder always swings for the fences. He will always take chances. Mm-hmm. And so... Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's what I like about him. So even when there's missteps like this, I, I'm i okay with it because I, I, I respect the fact that he wants to rise to those challenges. He wants to take characters in new directions. And I want to see that. So, I mean, he's taken a lot of risks in this movie that have paid off so far. So I, I'm, I'm okay with it. it I, I agree with you. I think it would have played better had his father 
died of the heart attack like in the first one, but I'll allow it. But it that doesn't make it any less painful to watch. <laughs> no. And, and I amazed at the fact that, like, Kim Kost is just so kind of blasé about it. Like, yeah, just just stay there. We're good. I'm just going to be taken away <laughs> by this twister. It didn't grab Bill Pullman or Hella Hunt, but it's taken me, so it's going to be fine. Um, so after that, we get to see Clark actually reunited with his mother and like, hey, I found my people. I found where I came from. And we have that. And I love that moment with Diane Lane. It's just like, oh, that's great, Clark. And it's like, you're my son. And like, I, I don't want to like, I don't want to share you with anybody else. Like, obviously, the, uh, you have like the allegories of, of, of adoption and the person having another family out there. Yeah, not to mention bad timing. I mean, she just now she's alone, and he's telling her that at that moment. Like, I don't know. maybe you should have waited. Yeah, but of course, like that'd be like the first thing. It's kind of like you run home when, like, when you were a kid. Like, hey, I did really good on this test. Are you proud of me? Yeah, yeah, true. And of course, we get the first like hint of uh, LexCorp because that's the truck he was riding it on at that moment. Um, and then we, after that, we have Zod comes back into the picture. Literally, the plot comes back to the movie. And mm-hmm. Zod makes a declaration, hand over this Kal-El, and Earth will be fine. And so when Lois had released her story initially, and her name being attached to it, so the government grabs her, wants to find out more about this alien that you know about, um... Yeah, I thought it was interesting that she immediately ran away. I was like, uh, <laughs> I don't know that, that this is going to work out for you, trying to run away from the FBI. <laughs> they caught her pretty quick. Yeah, I mean, it looks totally suspicious, too. Yeah, I was like, why did she do that? No, Lois, no. And, and I love the fact, like, oh, I'm going to go at the fire exit. Nobody's going to catch me there. Like, oh, <laughs> nope. Uh, and so on to the next controversial scene. Um, oh, boy. Yeah, Clark in the church. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. I actually really love um, this connection that Zack Snyder's making with the whole Jesus allegory. I mean, it, I think it makes a lot of sense. He's he's a messianic figure. I mean, he is. I mean, he is. I mean, that character is. And I think by drawing those parallels, it's helping the audience, especially general audiences like me, um, understand this character better, you know, by drawing on something that we know, something that we already know and understand and making that connection. I think it makes, it makes it stronger. Plus I just like all the visuals and Zack Snyder keeps this going through this movie, through BBS. Um, and I, and I, it is pretty heavy handed. I mean, it's not subtle, (laughs) but I still like it. Yeah. I mean, that's my opinion. And I'm not saying this, like, I'm not like a very, religious person i'm just saying i think it's really cool i think it's a bold choice um it could have come off as you know blasphemous to believers or they could really love it and i think you get both reactions from people but i really like it i actually think it's a good idea i mean with superman like the story of superman is pretty much like a retelling of moses so i mean like Child was going to die, was put in a basket, went down the river, was discovered mm-hmm. by a new pair of parents. I mean, religious overtones have always been a part of Superman's story. I mean, the fact that, like, having Jesus framed in the background while Clark is in the foreground and having the, in the stained glass that, he's, that looks like Jesus is wearing a red cape, 
that may mm-hmm. have been a bit a bridge too far for some people. I personally don't have a problem with it, and I think it's actually within the context of the scene. I like the fact that he goes for counsel. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't go. He doesn't like. Sure, the man is a priest, but he, I don't think he's asking him as a priest. I not mean, not at all. I mean, I, I got the the impression that the priest, even though obviously the priest is religious, he. I don't think he was really approaching it that way. I think he. I think that the choice to have a priest do that was just because there's that whole. You know, he's going to keep his secret quiet because when he tells somebody something in confession kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, I, I thought that they were sort of playing off that. And just because they're drawing these uh, religious parallels, that's why they picked a priest. But I felt like whenever he talked to the priest, he's very careful with his words. It, he never said like, oh, Jesus loves you and God loves, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> he kept his advice very like safe and in the middle. Like I, I never, I, I didn't get it leaning one way or the other too much, at least for me. Yeah, I mean, it's not until, like, the very last line says, like, it takes a leap of faith to get that trust. Mm-hmm. And, like, that, but of course, of course, he, of course he would say that at the very end, but it's more just, like, two people are talking, and he's just going for counsel. It just so happens to be the fact that he is a priest. Yeah, for whatever reason, you know, he had a really good experience with this guy. He trusts him, and I think, you know... The priest uh, isn't projecting religious ideals onto him or anything. I think he's just saying, in fact, I felt like it was pretty outside the box for him not to be like, oh, you're an alien. This challenges, you know, everything that I believe or whatever. Like, I don't think they went there at all. I'm not saying that if you're religious, you can't believe in aliens. (laughs) I'm so scared to say anything wrong. But um, I I just I just mean that I I didn't really draw that out of that scene. I, I just thought. I thought it was like for the plot, you know. <laughs> so I don't know. Right? No, you're you're good. I mean, uh, I'm curious if like I want to meet a religious person that does believe in aliens just to have a conversation with them now. Just thinking about that. Um, yeah, I, and and I feel like I feel like a lot of people do. I think there's a lot of religious people that you know we we get two polarizations of people. I mean, everything is sort of I, I, I don't know. You know, we we fall into believing into stereotypes. I'm sure there's a lot of people that are, you know progressive like that i just uh gosh ah oh, delete all this i'm so scared no no you're fine i mean yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean i mean, uh, I mean like <laughs> human beings are not binary that, that's the last thing i'll say about that we'll move on yeah, yeah. Uh, uh yeah yeah i don't i don't want any letters guys i'm sorry no um, uh, I mean, like, <laughs> if you made it this far let us know Tw- tweet at me if you made it this far and tweet at me <laughs> I, I will i will i will leave Tweet me, I will think of a word at the very end of the show, and if you made it that far, tweet that word to me so you know it made it to the end of the show. Anyway. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll add one last thing, My uh, and you don't have to dive into this too much, but my, my dad is very religious, and he's kind of obsessed with, like, you know, the concept of there being aliens or things like that, so... You definitely can have both. I wasn't saying you can't. No, of course not. <laughs> anyway. Um, Awkward. <laughs> transition. Trying to find Transition Clark away. Went, <laughs> run away. Uh, Clark uh, turns himself in. There we go. Uh, there you go. Uh, uh, do, uh, has one of the images, another image that always that's always stood out to me about this movie, it's when Clark is being led down the hall in handcuffs, surrounded by military personnel. I mean, it's just like one of those things that just like, you don't see that at all. You don't see Superman handcuffed and being led that way. 
Mm-hmm. And Snyder being such a great visualist, and another th- speaking of like visuals, this is a little tangent before we go any further. I find this kind of interesting that I'm going to get very technical here, so I, I apologize in advance, people. Um, that I love the fact that most of Zack Snyder's movies have been presented in widescreen, where you see the bars on top and the bottom of your screen whenever you watch it in the correct aspect ratio, and that what he would usually do is he would shoot what there is called the, the film process, like super 35, which means like you have like almost pretty much a 16 by nine image, but you're just taking extraction of the widescreen image. So if you want to adjust it, you can impose like, all right, we need to skirt this a little bit up or a little bit down. So, and it has other kind of benefits for you because the lenses are cheaper to use or, and so on and so forth. But for this, he's doing another thing for aping from Christopher Nolan because all of his stuff is shot true widescreen and anamorphic, which means you're squeezing a wide image onto a square frame. And so when you go into post-production or how you'd usually see it in theaters back in the day, the projectionist would actually put a special lens in front of the projector so your image is projected in the correct ratio on the screen. And it's interesting that he did that for this and BVS because there are certain limitations to anamorphic. There is certain aesthetics to it. That's why you see lens flares a lot in this movie. That's why J.J. Abrams likes to use anamorphic lenses. There's a certain look to mm-hmm. them. And I'm just... I, th- that was one tangent I wanted to get in. I know that was just super geeky on my part. No, <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I think it calls back to what you're saying at the beginning of the podcast that he pulls so many cues from Nolan and that this is stylistically such a departure from some of his other films. Right. And, and then of course, like when he, since he used IMAX on BVS and used a taller frame for those sequences, that's why justice league is going to be in the one eight five aspect ratio, not his traditional widescreen aspect ratio, which I found kind of curious, but I wonder if it's going to be a little different watching these movies one that all of them are out on blu-ray it's kind of like you watch the the mcu like everything's a widescreen except the first avengers and then everything goes back to widescreen like oh well this is one of these things is not like the other Mm -hmm. but as well as like ant-man's the same way but anyway um (laughs) (laughs) i think it's an interesting scene too because i mean if you're gonna stick and i don't know if you want to a whole lot to me it's very you know like extreme in this movie but um, I guess you could see that scene where he's being led in handcuffs, like another sort of religious thing. I don't know. You know, does, does, does it read that way to you a little bit? It does because you think of, instead of like Judas turning him in for, uh, 30 pieces of silver, he obviously, mm-hmm. he, he would, uh, he turns himself in to face his persecution. Right. Um, obviously there's no real fear in Clark at this point because he knows they really can't do anything for him but I do like the fact that he could just he could just barge in there like I'm Superman and I this is how it's gonna happen and nothing yeah. is gonna stop me but like no I'm gonna make them feel comfortable even if that means handcuffing me even though it's gonna do nothing right and and I think it it's showing his restraint you know we saw a little bit earlier in the movie where he got really upset and threw that truck in a tree and we're starting to see more, I guess, restraint from him. Not that he hasn't shown any, but he's just kind of fine-tuning how he's interacting with people. <laughs> yeah, it is It is a growth on his part. 
and we have the explanation for the House of L for the audience and like, oh, what's the S stand for? It means hope. Well, here it's an S. And how do you, how do you feel about that when like they're skirting around the using the phrase Superman up until like it's kind of just dropped later on by a, a, another or uh, another military uh, officer. Yeah, I love it. I mean, in almost all the superhero movies I like, they rarely use the name of the character. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that that's usually a good choice. I think if they say Superman all the time, it starts to lose impact. I don't know. I, I, I like that. Yeah. I mean, like, there's there there are times, like, obviously, like, in Batman 89 where, where he's holding the thug off the side of the roof, like, what are you? And he says, I'm Batman. Or you have... <laughs> I love how in the beginning of Guardians of the Galaxy, who are you? I'm Star-Lord. Who? You know, Star-Lord. Uh, uh, oh, never mind. And Yeah, <laughs> and that was kind of like sort of poking fun at that too, you know. Oh, yeah. And they do kind the, of meta. <laughs> yeah, and they do the same thing for Ant-Man when he comes across uh, Falcon for the first time. Like, yeah, I'm Ant-Man. Not my choice. <laughs> and the, the hilarity of that. And so... Clark agrees to the military, like, I will turn myself in, and I will make the sacrifice for humanity. Fiora comes down and says, we want we want that woman, too, which we have no real explanation why they would want Lois to go with Clark. I guess somehow they could tell that they needed her, that he had a connection with her. I mean, was that it? That's how I kind of, like, kind of... That's how I read it. It, but now that you say put it that way, I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel because like because they uh, they're obviously monitoring the broadcast of Earth, and they've said that Lois Lane knows who this person is, and they presumably were watching him in the desert while they went to go pick him up, and he was talking to her moments before they landed. Right. So I assume like, all right, this person means a lot to him. She could be theoretically leverage if we needed to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Since they know he's as strong as them, if not stronger, because he's been there longer. Right. Yeah. And so Fiora comes, grabs him, and she has a the moment between her and Christopher Maloney's uh, Colonel Hardy. They immediately have um, stern looks at each other, and it's obviously setting up the conflict that plays out the rest of the through the rest of the movie. And so afterwards, we meet Zod and. Clark passes out because he's not used to the atmosphere on the ship that's that is in and in, in around Earth that's in orbit at this point. Mm-hmm. So then we have the kind of dream sequence of how what they plan to do with the terraforming. What do you think of this sequence here? It's really awesome because uh, especially that skull part at the end, uh, because it it later connects to a scene in BBS. Have you heard about this? Um, and what connection? Okay, so there was a fan theory, and Zack Snyder confirmed it, that uh, that part in BBS where uh, Superman saves that girl out of the burning building in Mexico, and it's Dia de los Muertes, and there's all those people with painted skulls, like, touching him, that that sort of calls back to this scene. Right, okay. Yes, that sounds very familiar. And it's just visually really interesting. Kind of reminds you of the Terminator. I don't know with all the skulls. <laughs> uh, I, I think it. I think it's really really good. I just really like it. Yeah, and, and like, because 
the second the Terminator like Terminator Two is my favorite movie, so of course like anything, oh I didn't know that yeah, and so <laughs> seeing like all the skulls like even if it's a morbid image like oh that's just really cool it just harkens back to that, and I like the fact that like there are such cool like weird aesthetic choices not weird aesthetic choices but like having Clark in a Kansas City Royals T shirt mm-hmm. previously and then. He gets turned into, we see him in the black suit, which, like, people have been, like, begging for in there. They hope, they're praying that we'll get to see the black suit Superman in Justice League. Because it's, like, very much like how the return of Superman after the death of Superman by Doomsday's hands. Sure. And, and there's, there's there's several lines, because I think that this and BVS are very quotable. Mm-hmm. And especially Zaz lines, and I love this. The, yeah, like the first line is like, "Well, the foundation of of Krypton has to be built upon something," and it's obviously showing like, "Oh, we're just, we're just going to terraform Earth, and there's nothing you really do about it. It's either you join us or die." Kind of kind of a deal. It's kind of dark too, because I mean, did they do that before? Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, are they implying that that you know some Kryptonians have done that before? On other planets, you know? Because, like, they don't always have the connection that Clark does. I think so, because he brings up Jor-El in his speech. I don't know if he's just using him to manipulate Clark's feelings. Mm-hmm. Or, like, yeah, this is just standard Kryptonian procedure. Uh, whether it's a, a, a planet with no life or a planet with life, we kind of just take over. That's kind of left up in the air if that's really that's that's their if i stutter uh if that's their feelings or not well yeah and i think i think it really could be because i mean it's very purposeful that Jarrell, you know sent you know he sent him to earth but he raises him in such a way to not think of himself necessarily as superior you know through the lessons that he gives him and his plan for rebuilding krypton quote unquote is for him to <laughs> organically meet somebody on earth probably and be with them and have children with them. And that also creates, you know, instead of what they had, uh, instead of creating like a, you know, conquerors over a planet, it's like they would have an alliance, right? Because they would literally be connected to them. Oh, for sure. And I think, yeah, I mean, he's much, I think it's a kind of a dichotomy between Jorel and Jonathan where, that Jor-El knows he's capable of great things and he should do great things if he chooses to. Mm-hmm. And Podcast like, all right, you can do great things if you want to. And like, obviously, Jor-El thinks he should be. He should be forthright. He should be proactive in his abilities in order to bridge two worlds. While Podcast is kind of hesitant to that, uh, to the degree he's willing to sacrifice children if you want to look at it that way. <laughs> and so, of course, you have this internal conflict with between Clark of like, which father do I listen to? Right. It's kind of like it's like if you were dealing with step, like if you were at your parents and you have step parents and they're both telling you different things, you're like, all right, where where do I leave? Where does my allegiance fall? Mm-hmm. And so Lois using the key that Clark had given her, she's able to, with the help of the projection of Jor-El, helps her escape. Uh, uh, Zod's ship. Uh, Clark is able, and Clark is able to, she changes the atmosphere so Clark can breathe on there. And so he breaks out. We have the, another religious moment where he floats out of the ship and kind of makes himself look like he's on the cross. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and he goes and saves Lois. And I love that moment. I love that one little moment where he's trying to get to the pod as it plummets to Earth. And he's able to yank her out just in time. And he has that one moment they both gently float back to Earth. And I just find that it's a really sweet moment before the next big action sequence is, is when um, Zod comes to the, the Kent farm looking for the Codex. They don't find it. They're threatening Martha. Clark comes in and delivers one of my favorite lines of the movie when he's punching Zod as he's dragging him across the ground. Like, you think you can threaten my mother and tosses him through a 7-Eleven and a gas station. Yeah, yeah. What do you think of this action set piece and the product placement during the sequence? You know, I didn't really notice the product placement, so it didn't really distract me. Um, I think it's a good action sequence because I'm not typically super invested in action sequences in a lot of movies. Um, You know, I'm usually more interested in, in the characters and their development, but I think this one had really great payoff. I mean, him you know, attacking his mom. I mean, how, how can he not react? And, and you as the audience have a really big connection with her too, because they've been kind of building that the whole movie. Um, so I think it, I think it plays off really well. Totally. And I never had a problem with the product placement until somebody pointed out, like, there's a lot of product placement. I'm like, well, it's a small American town. There's of course, there's going to be real products there. I mean, <laughs> but, oh, is this something you can't like unsee or, no, it's not, it's not like yeah. I, I don't have a problem with it because like I understand the logistics of it because having it there alleviates stuff. Because maybe because I come from a filmmaker perspective that, yeah, it alleviates some of the budget uh, that there's – it goes into the budget. Like, all right, that's some money that we don't have to put up ourselves because 7-Eleven putting up money or IHOP or Sears. I mean, it's not as egregious as saying uh, like – Dying of the Day, the last Pierce Brosnan James Bond movie, where <laughs> yeah. that's a bit extreme. Like, cause like it's like it's it was like a commercial, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's so close. Like they have close-ups of products, and I'm like, all right, guys, really? I understand like the Omega Watch, maybe, but everything else, like the the shaving kit, the shirts, and everything. I'm like, all right, now you're just being kind of obnoxious here. Right, there's a balance, and and so in this scene, it didn't really distract me. I didn't even really notice it. I'm gonna have to watch it again. Yeah, I mean, and so afterwards, and like you said, this is very Superman too. Like where we're having Kryptonians battle in a residential area. And yeah, I mean, like I, oh, I, it's interesting to me that, that it's such a controversy that this happens because I feel like it did happen in that other movie. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know how much you want to dive into that, but no, yeah. no, I mean, because it seems like like it's the pot coin, the kettle black at this point, if you're really going to get up on the, if you get up on this movie's case, because if you enjoy that movie and don't enjoy this, is it because it's a lot more destruction because special effects has improved since? Yeah. Like, yeah. But I mean, it happens a lot, right? Where people criticize certain things about a movie. I think it's like when you don't think something's working, you'll be really nitpicky. So I think that's, nitpicky it's kind of like oh batman uh used guns but like you know in the 1989 he kind of sort of killed people i don't know you know it's the same thing his his batmobile had like guns on it i don't know so i feel like i feel like this is nitpicky if you if you don't like this movie for that reason yeah i mean like if you if you had problems with it begin with these are not going to help you 
if you didn't have problems to begin with, I don't think this is going to cause you any real big issues. Yeah, no, I can't say that I would have really noticed it had I not known there was controversy already. Right. And of course, like there's another controversy, like the the color palette of the movie, like it's too desaturated, it's like it's too like muted and everything. And I'm like, like you look at that, and like even there was that that kind of like almost fake photo going around, like look at how this the photo is. It's like really super desaturated, like almost black and white. And like here is supposed to, here it was in the day, and you find out that it was kind of doctored and wasn't true. You watch the Blu-ray, like yeah, Superman's suit pops in that moment when he's walking down the street to face off against Fiora and uh, the other uh, big Kryptonian. Mm-hmm. And I do like that we see, because one of the big, I guess, hallmarks hallmarks of a Zack Snyder movie is slow motion. Mm-hmm. And you figure this would be an opportune moment for him to use it because they're moving so fast, but he doesn't. Yeah. I find that kind of curious. Yeah. I don't know. I think maybe just it's what worked for that scene. Right. And because, like, you see him, like, zipping from one side of the frame to the other, and you see Fairer, like, taking down um, soldiers in the street, and her and, and Clark are fighting, and they're, they fly into the IHOP. And I love this moment where Fiora says, like, because you have morals, you will always be at a disadvantage to us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, and that's playing on the classic. You know, I, I think Superman's always seen as, like, a Boy Scout. You know, they say that a lot. And... Um, and that he's naive and all these other things. And so, I mean, that's, that's a big conflict of, uh, between, I think even the ideologies of his dad, um, and Zod. So, so yeah, I like that moment. I think that's a good reflection of that. Right. And I love how you actually tweeted this, I guess the other day, it's the line that Fiora says like to Clark, even if you save one for every life you save, we'll kill a million more. And I think it sets up expectations of what these people are going to willing to do. And that's what that kind of, I think, justifies the ending to me. Oh, for sure. And and I think that, uh, that yeah, yeah, it's like it, it does. And, and again, he's new to being Superman. So maybe a more accomplished or, or a more, uh, what do I want to say, a, a Superman that has more experience would have been able to deal with that situation differently, regardless of what threats they were making. But in that moment, I mean, this is like the first time he's ever fought another Kryptonian. It's the first time he's ever had a real challenge. And it's pretty much one of the first times he's ever been Superman. So, yeah, I I think that his reaction to that, to their threat, makes total sense. And he's seeing how much destruction they're laying out. And I think, again, I know it's controversial how much destruction happens, but Superman's lost control of the situation. He's not able to stop them. Despite his best efforts and... Mm-hmm. Even to the point that the military decides to attack all three of them because they, they perceive all three of them to be a threat at this point. Right. And even even after that, Clark still saves military individuals that are in the scene. I love like what was the one pilot that's falling out of the air. He grabs them and he brings he brings them down to the ground and asks, like, "Are you okay?" And the pilot's about to draw his gun to defend Superman because of I think it's Vera who comes up and like sucker punches him at, at one point. And Colonel Hardy's helicopter is taken down, and he unloads his weapons into Fiora to has no effect on her because her arm is so strong, and he's willing to pull his knife, and he's seen what she can do, but yet he's willing to try to stop her this way. And one of my favorite lines is where he's saying, a good death is his own reward. Yeah, it's a great moment. 
and Superman comes, saves him, and I always find this kind of like almost unintentionally funny, where the other Kryptonian tosses a train car at Superman, so you see it fly in the air for a moment, and you see Clark look up and realizes like, oh crap, hits him and it shoves him right into the bank, and I believe that's the first image we saw from this movie was him in front of the bank vault, all damaged and sparks flying. And I always wonder, like, oh, is he breaking into something? Is he breaking into, like, a bank or the forces of solitude? Um, the Kryptonians leave. Clark is okay. Colonel Hardy says, this man is not our enemy. And they devise a plan to... They try to figure out how they're going to stop uh, Zod and his, and, his, uh, and his crew. Zod decides to use the world engine and starts to terraform Earth. They realize mm-hmm. if they use the pod that Clark came in, they'll be able to create their own Phantom Zone and send all the machine back to where it came from. And so they split up. Clark goes to the Indian Ocean, while the military decides to go to Metropolis to deal with that threat. What do you think of the sequence of like everybody dealing with the destruction of Metropolis, as well as the military trying to stop the Black Zero event from happening? Um, I thought it played out really well. I like how they keep flashing back to one of the reporters. It's kind of like trapped in the rubble. Um, and I couldn't help this time rewatching it again. All I could think about was BVS, yeah. obviously, um, because it's the beginning of that one, but also because there's some beats in BVS that call back to this in a really extreme way that I didn't notice until recently. Like, for instance, uh, the girl trapped in the rubble is also the girl in BBS that, uh, you know, when they're going to finally write that story about, oh, you know, has Superman fallen from grace? She's the one that says, like, are we really going to do this? And I didn't realize that she had such a deep connection to it. Right. And and, and also, oh, go ahead, sorry. Uh, no, 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 after you. Um, and then the other thing that I noticed was, um, oh, my gosh, it just left my brain. Uh, let's see. So we're talking about. Well, I can come back to you if you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come back to me. Go, <laughs> um, you go. You go. Um, I, I even to the point that I think somebody even did like a sync up of the Man of Steel footage and the BVS footage for like put the two videos together and have them play out. And they're pretty much almost in the same time that like the events match up. Like maybe one event happens before the other. Um, I like like some people complain like oh it's like too much of like nine eleven imagery or allegory there. Why would you complain about that? That's like what I like about it. Well, yeah, I mean, like since like since I, I was, I like I was in the state when this happened. I was no more than forty five minutes away from that event happening. I remember seeing kids and family like in my grade being pulled out because they had family that worked in the city at that time. Is what and I, one mm-hmm. particular friend whose father was a firefighter who lost a lot his life that day and so that immediately came back to me watching this but that some people say it's like everything else that it was not subtle maybe that's their complaint hmm yeah maybe so i i thought it was a really good idea because i mean when you contrast that part in oh man i don't want to create any online wars but um (laughs) but like you know kind of like in civil war when they show you um, the the characters dealing with that concept of, you know, our actions have costs, which is kind of what happens in this movie. I think by paralleling this to a real event here, it, it helps us create an emotional connection to it. 
Right. I mean, it doesn't sound like you want to cause a civil war amongst the fan groups right there. <laughs> I don't because I'm not I'm not hating on it, but I, I'm just saying like as a fan of this, that that's what pulls me in is the, a personal connection. So I think, you know, uh, in this movie, you see Superman did everything he possibly could. But you could also see it from other people's perspectives that are closer to the event. And I think using 9-11 as an example um, to sort of blueprint off of that helps us understand why people would turn against him. Totally. And I mean, especially playing it out from Bruce's perspective in BVS, like mm-hmm. like when you see that, when you have that moment where he's holding that little girl and he's looking up at the sky and you have that music like come in as you see Superman and Zod fly through the air. Like at that moment, like, all right, Superman, I'm sorry, but Batman's going to kick your ass and you kind of deserve it from his point of view. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, like, you saying you don't want to cause any any rifts or anything, like, obviously, the destruction in this movie was not, it did not go unnoticed, because they made kind of a kind of a course correction in BBS. Hell, even Age of Ultron, they made, like, so blatant, yeah. like, like, oh, we're, we have to save the people. We can't have unnecessary destruction. I'm like, all right. It's, yeah, it sort of upsets me that they have to play it that safe because it's kind of like, isn't that more realistic? And I'm not saying that these movies have to be so gritty and realistic that they're exactly like our everyday lives. But I think that um, stakes feel higher when they when they are higher in the movie. You know, I mean, as the audience, like, this is a really big conflict for Superman because – you know, this is what happened. It took so much destruction of the entire city because he was so new. He's so green. And then he saved the city, but it was at a big cost. Like, I think that has better impact than if he just beat up the bad guy at the end, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's because like, it goes back to everything that we've said before that it's, it's movie willing to take risks. I mean, like I just, list, I just finished listening to your review of Blade Runner 2049 today and obviously, oh. yes, and I really enjoyed that episode. Oh, oh thank you. Um, and I feel like like that could have been a movie that could have just simply been so like made like, all right, we're gonna have this this these elements in this movie, and that's it. And it could have just been such a shameless sequel twenty years later, and it could have been just like such a product. It could have been such a filmmaking by committee, but no, it's a movie that takes its own risk and. It, it swings through the fences in its own pace and how it presents its story. And yeah, it did reflect sadly in the box office, but that's a movie that's going to live on with fans for years to come. Yeah. I mean, what had the biggest impact from the first one was all the big questions that movie asked the ambiguity and in terms of like, you know, what you get out of it. I think when you have a movie where it can be interpreted in a few different ways, then, you know, there's going to be certain people that do not like that. And I think the problem, or I guess the issue that a lot of people have with Zack Snyder's work is, I'm so sorry. That's okay. <laughs> you, I, I have a, uh, a side note. I have my little dog, she had surgery. And so she's wearing a little cone right now around oh. her head and I can't take her collar off. So usually I take my dog's collars off. Um, I also can't put her in another room cause she'll cry. So She's silent most of the time, but every once in a while she shakes it, and it's really loud because she's wearing that cone. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, I, I've recorded with Andy from, like, Holy Bad Kids, and you can hear his cats every now and then in the background. I love so. that. Him, me hearing the cat, like, that that gives me more confidence about when the dogs make sounds. I'm like, okay, 
Yeah. So when I hear the cat is just kind of cute, you're like, <laughs> you're yeah. like, oh, he's yeah. really upset. <laughs> exactly. It's like it's 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 it makes this conversation more real. It's not just like we're just having a conversation now, like robots or anything. It makes yeah. whatever environment we're in more real. Um, right. So so going back, I guess, to my train of thought, if I can find it again. Um, uh, but that, yeah, I. Oh, oh Zach's time. Yeah, oh, Zach's time. I didn't know where you, if you're going to get lost or not. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that uh, Zack Snyder takes those risks also and leaves things open-ended. He lets you sort of make your own decision as to what the character's motivations are sometimes and if it's good or bad. And I think that that, to me, that makes the narrative stronger. And I feel like, you know, BBS also had a lot of that. Um, you really had to stop and think about what the right thing to do was. And I like that about it. So it, it really doesn't bother me. Yeah, and one of the, like, I forget which interview I read it in, like, one of Zack Snyder's favorite movies is RoboCop, and that's a movie that has a lot of religious overtones, that's the one that has a lot of satire in it, and you can definitely mm-hmm. tell that Paul Verhoeven's vision definitely influenced Zack Snyder's way of filmmaking, where it came to portraying violence and themes pre- um, presented in a movie, and I feel like that, that's tremendous because also, like, I just love RoboCop as well. So, like, oh, more love RoboCop, the better. Um, and so Clark goes to the Indian Ocean. He's fighting the machine with the Liquid Z, uh, liquid Geo, like, weird tech tentacles. It's like, it's like oh, like people have made, like, hentai jokes about this. I'm like, oh, guys, don't make that <laughs> joke. I don't just have that image I in my head. I don't want that. Exactly. <laughs> that like, in your head. No, I'm like, oh. And then we have that moment where he's in the cone of like the the wave itself and you see him like just fighting against it and watching this time it reminded me of a quote that Graham Morrison said on Kevin Smith's Batman on Batman podcast is that Batman fights death that's like whatever he that's always what he's battling against he's trying to prevent death from whomever he's trying to save that night Superman fights the impossible and being around this world engine, his powers will be weakened because he's he's uh, exposed to Kryptonian um, atmosphere. And despite all that, despite this overwhelming, crushing thing that would, should kill him, he pres- perseveres and is able to destroy it. And I think that's a true Superman moment right there when he flies to the machine and the music built it in that moment. I think it's just wonderful. Yeah, and I, I didn't notice, you know, the first time watching this movie... Um, the the music and the way it connects to BBS, like the same exact music, even right. in a lot of scenes, like it really emphasizes it, makes it very memorable. And then I, I finally remembered the other thing I didn't notice the first time, but like, uh, so something goes in the Indian Ocean. I mean, that's the kryptonite, right? Yeah, because that, the mm-hmm. remainders of that ship, that Earth, the Kryptonian radiation mixed with Earth radiation made kryptonite, pretty mm-hmm. much. Yeah. Which I find it kind of interesting because I, I remember they said early on, like, there's going to be no kryptonite in this the, these movies. Well, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you can't really make a threat that kind of on, on that level without kryptonite. It's just one of those things you'd have to have. It's like you can't have a werewolf movie without a silver bullet. Right. Which I think even I think even uh Lex Luthor says at one point um, when he's trying to pitch the idea of a kryptonite weapon to Holly Hunter's character in BBS. But, um, so the machine is destroyed. Um, 
Colonel Hardy flies his ship, his plane into the the other world engine that causes the it to go into the Phantom Zone. Mm-hmm. Um, the scout ship is destroyed by Clark, and I love that moment where Zod says to him, "Like if you destroy the ship, you destroy Krypton." And Clark defiantly says, "Krypton has chance." He melts away the ship. Yeah, it's a that's a dark moment. Like it's it's really good. I like it. Krypton yeah. had his chance because it's kind of like yeah. I mean that's that's not fair. And I think he, it's calling back to what his father basically instilled in him. It's like you can't just you know. <laughs> are you are you done? Okay. She, um, you can't just you can't just uh, go to some other planet that we that they haven't messed up yet and just wipe everybody away and start all over and punish them. I mean, I, I think that's what he's alluding to, and it's kind of sort of a pe- parallel for us, right? Because uh, you know we're sort of destroying our planet. I mean, I think they're they're making a big parallel with Krypton Kryptonians and and humans. Oh yeah, I mean it's. Not, I guess, made it's up. not subtle. No, the, that's, that should have been the subtitle for this movie. Man of Steel, not subtle. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, global yeah. warming is real. Yes. Jesus allegory. Yeah. Global warming is real. Jesus <laughs> allegories. Uh, I mean, like, what other thing could you just piss off? Uh, like, aliens are real. Uh, like, what other things could you just throw <laughs> in there? I'm not going to say it's aliens, but... Yes, I mean, now I'm just imagining the aliens meme guy with his crazy yeah. hair. Um, <laughs> and so, and I love this moment where, like, the ship crashes in the the remains of this part of Metropolis. Um, Clark and Lois have their first kiss, and I love that joke where, after the first kiss, it's just downhill from here. And yeah, I think that's really cute. <laughs> and it's like, I don't, think it, I don't think it applies to aliens, or, like, that only applies to humans. I think it's a really charming moment there. Yeah, and it's a little bit of a callback to the Lois that we we know from uh, previous works because that's some, sounds something like she would say, you know. Oh, totally. And then we find out Zod is still alive, and I love this moment here that he was bred, he was genetically engineered to protect Krypton at all costs and protect its people. Now I have no people. I have no purpose in life. You have taken that away from me. So I will take away your world, or I will try, or I will kill you, and or I will kill you, or you will kill me to stop me. Mm-hmm. I, I I feel like people who complain about the ending, there's no other recourse. I mean, there's no other course of action here. He was going to have to kill Zod, whether it be in space or in Metropolis. Right, and and I mean again, like I, I don't know. I keep saying it, but this is Superman at the beginning, right? So I mean, he. Maybe a more, uh, you know, Superman with more years under his belt as being Superman, he maybe would have handled that situation differently. But in the moment, this is this is the only thing he could do. He was at a disadvantage. He didn't know how to be Kryptonian. He didn't know how to fight them. Um, you know, they're more they're even though they're struggling with the atmosphere, they have more experience than he does. So he's at a disadvantage, and I think he did what he had to do in that moment. Exactly, and I love this. There's a moment where they fly into a construction site. Clark flies into a sign that says, "How many X amount of days since injury?" He, yeah. <laughs> he knocks into it and it immediately goes to zero. Um, and there's one line where Zod is honing his his, his powers. It's like, "I was trained 
to be the, the best of what I can be. Where'd you train? On a farm? I, I don't know. I just love Michael Shannon's, like, just so much gusto in delivery of that line. And they immediately start flying around Metropolis, destroying a lot of it, destroying the Wayne Tech building, even though we don't know it's the Wayne Tech building yet. Yeah. Um, and so then we destroy a Wayne uh, satellite. And so then we end up in this, I guess, I don't know if you call it City Hall or train station where Zod is using his heat vision. He's going to obliterate this family if Clark doesn't kill him. Yeah, he gives him impossible choices. I mean, he 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 has to choose one or the other. I mean, it's like that's his whole thing. It's like he was never going to let him not choose. Either be on my side and kill all humans or kill me. The end. There's no other option. So, yeah, I don't I don't know why people criticize that. No, I I I never had a problem with that even in the theater. I'm like, that makes sense. That adds up. I mean, sure, can you cover his eyes? Yeah, that could have temporarily stopped him and he could have gone and got he could have threatened another family or another person it's it was like there was no other way to stop him and that's why i have no issue with that i know it's the last controversial thing about this movie i mean it's i think it's just a lot of hoopla for no reason well and again i think the fact that this movie has controversial moments is is good to me I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm just contentious, but I <laughs> I like when movies take risks and I like, you know, when there's real stakes. And so I think this movie has that. So I think this moment's a really powerful moment and it's sort of starting to define who Superman is, whose side he's on, and uh, it impacts what he's going to do in the future. And it, it has really big consequences. He was sort of in an impossible situation that he didn't know how to get out of. He did the, what he thought was best, and we'll see in the next movie just the cost of that decision. And it, like this is the last person of his kind, to to his knowledge, the last link to his other world, and he still kills him. And there's a moment in uh, Doctor Who in David Tennant's run where the only other uh, Person from Gallifrey. Yeah, you have the time of yeah. wow, wow, Jesus. Wow. I, I, now <laughs> See, I'm... I told you it happens. Like, and, but but I think it's the fear of someone hearing you and being like, "Fake nerd, you had no idea what that term was." <laughs> yes, I mean it's, it's weird. As soon as like you start recording, you put a microphone in front of you, you're just like, ah, now I'm uh, suddenly tense. But I do not, <laughs> yeah. I do not know why. Because <laughs> it's all being recorded. Exactly, and so <laughs> yeah, the master is shot, and he has a chance to regenerate and save himself. And the master chooses not to, and despite the doctor's pleas, because he's like, "You, we're the last ones of our kind. Please don't leave me alone." And the master is saying, "Like, nope, this is my last like f you to you. I'm gonna, I'm not, I'm gonna die just to piss you off and leave you alone." And it's like, it's like, all right, I'm last of my kind yet again. And so afterwards, after everything is settled, we see the general driving away with uh, the other officer. Drone crushes into the ground. It's like, are you crazy? You know how expensive that drone was? Like, well, I know you're trying to keep tabs on me. I'm from Kansas. I'm as American as apple pie. You don't have to worry about me. You just have to trust me. Leaves. And General turns to the officer next to him. And he's like, why are you smiling? He's like, nothing. I think he's just kind of hot. And I know, like, <laughs> some people have problem with that. I'm like, really? Like, that Yeah. Line? I didn't have a problem with that. I mean, I thought it was kind of cheesy, but... 
I didn't have any like moral issue with it. <laughs> no, I think I think you kind of needed a little levity after everything we've dealt with in this movie. That's true. Yeah, you need you need a laugh. You need a chuckle. And that's why I, I still laugh at that joke thing because I'm like, yeah, because that's a that's just funny, and b like, yeah, like Henry Cavill's just a good looking person. That makes sense of somebody just being attracted to him. He's supposed uh, to be like a perfect person. Yeah, exactly. And so, and the movie ends with him talking to his mother about what he's going to do. He's like, oh. I gotta do something that I gotta keep my ear to the ground, and if anything trouble happens, I can be there to help save him. And then this is where we get like this version of the Superman theme. The track is called "What Are You Gonna Do When You're Not Saving the World." It's like the slow piano building up into the crescendo, and we finally see Clark Kent, the true, a real Clark Kent of like him at the Daily Planet with the glasses. And I love this line here when Perry White, Lawrence Fishburne, introduces Clark Kent to Lois Lane. Show him the ropes, and she's like, "Welcome to the planet." And I'm like, "Ah, that's that's clever writing right there." Mm-hmm. And do you feel like he knows who he is? I don't know. I had that thought this this time. I mean, especially by BBS, I feel like he knows. Do you well, think? No, like the Perry knows that he's Superman. Yeah. I don't think so because I feel like oh. he. Would, yeah, I don't think he would have gotten him on his case so much in BBS about not reporting on the the assignments that he was given. Maybe. I don't know. I just, I felt like, I mean, you're probably right. I just, I felt that in the, in the, uh, in Man of Steel, there's just so many things that, you know, uh, Lois gives away and that they would be too much of a coincidence in the second movie, but I don't know. I think he knows by the end of BVS. Mm-hmm. I think that's why, because we, because like, I love like the montage at the end of this, the parallel funerals of Superman and Clark Kent. Yeah, like, he would, like, have to know at that point. <laughs> yeah, because he goes from, like, he's at the printing press, he sees, like, the the front page, like, Superman dead, he immediately turns into the obituary of Clark Kent. I think that's how, I think he knows that Clark is Superman or one and the same. Yeah, and plus, like, I know he was his employee, but would he really fly to Kansas for his funeral? I don't know. If he wasn't, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I, I mean, like I understand because we don't know where in relation where Metropolis is to Smallville in this universe. True, true, true. I mean, and I do like the one interesting fact that my friend Dakota and I kind of argue about that he does not like the fact that 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 Gotham and Metropolis are twin cities like Oakland and San Francisco. Yeah, I got confused about that. Uh, the first time I watched BBS, I was like, are they really that close? Like, that seemed unrealistic to me. But then they do establish it's, like, across the river, so. Yeah, I think it's a unique yeah. take on it rather than, like, some people say, like, oh, Metropolis uh, Metropolis is, like, Chicago and Gotham is New York or, or it's Boston or however you want to yeah. plug in whatever city you want for it. Yeah, in, in this case, they're pretty much next to each other, yeah. Yeah, I think I think it makes that movie a lot easier to tell that story. Yeah. You know, it, it sets the dichotomy up even more between the two mm-hmm. of them. Yeah, as Batman and Superman's characters. But so we've reached the end of the movie, and one of the few lingering questions I have is like, how do you feel like this movie has aged since 2013 when it came out? Well, like I said, I I think I saw it after that, mm-hmm. but. Um, I think I think if anything, issues that people might have had with that movie are made stronger by BBS. Do you agree with that? Yes, I mean, like for I, me, they are anyway. Um, 
Like my like a lot of people have problems with like Avengers Age of Ultron, and I feel like Civil War paid off a lot of things that were set up in Age of Ultron. I feel mm-hmm. like yeah, I feel like how if I were gonna put it into hockey terms, like yeah, the Russo brothers scored while Joss Whedon gets an assist because of that. And I feel like a lot of things that they're set up in Man of Steel or issues are explored or even validated in BVS. And I feel like the same thing is probably going to happen with Justice League. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I think it ages well because there's just so much in these movies that, you know, you don't notice the first time. Um, like, I didn't notice that the first time I watched it that, um, you know, the the uh, priest at the end at his funeral was the priest that he kept talking to earlier in the film um, just little things like that. And then I think he's even in BBS too, right? Yeah. He's, yeah, he's at, uh, yeah, he's at, like he's in, obviously he's in, obviously here in Man Steel. And I think he's the priest like overseeing the funeral of Clark Kent at the end of BBS. Or if he's not, he's yeah, part of the Sorry, pri- that's what I meant to say. Yeah. I think that, I think that he is the priest, but cause I just watched it recently. If he's not, he's one of the parishioners that's actually just at the, I guess the funeral itself. Right. At the, uh, yeah. Like right before they, before they bury him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think there's like a lot of like hidden detail in there that, uh, that makes more sense after you watch BBS. But I just wish that, you know, as a, as an audience, we had a little bit of patience with some of that stuff, you know, because you know that there's another movie coming, uh, to a certain extent. So maybe this is leading somewhere. And I, I kind of like that. Um, and again, I already told you that I like movies that have exposition. I like movies that have, gosh, <laughs> I like movies that have, yeah, <laughs> I like movies that have, you know, a lot to say. So I, I really appreciate it. Yeah. And I think, uh, because like Zack Snyder said like, oh, this is a three part story. Like he always intended for Man of Steel and BBS and Justice League to be the Superman arc. I think it's just unfortunate that we're in such a instant gratification culture mm-hmm. that, like you said, we're not willing to be patient with a story. Right. And like when you were talking earlier about Blade Runner and a lot of people saying, you know, it's too slow. I I think when you go back and you watch older movies, the pacing is different. It usually is a lot slower. And sometimes I do feel that we try to get there too fast in movies now. And so I like movies like this that do have a little bit of a slower pace and a build and, you know, a little bit of questions at the end, because I don't know, to me that, that, that usually leads to bigger payoff. Um, so that's what I like about it. Oh, totally. And I'm just worried. I'll, I'll hold on to that thought a little bit later, but, um, <laughs> no worries. Yeah. Um, as a, the launching pad for all the these DC this this DC cinematic universe, how do you think that works as a entry movie? I think it does work. Um, I mean, like I told you uh, at the beginning of this, I, I it made me interested in Superman. So I think that uh, you know it was introducing all this in a different way, and I like that. Uh, my only concern is because other people didn't, we may not get to have movies like this uh going forward yeah i mean that's the kind of unfortunate thing like you mentioned before blade runner there's obviously dangling clauses that could be 
go into another sequel because there are some conflicts that are not resolved and some, I guess, bad the bad guys, some bad guys get away in that movie and you kind of, uh, there's like, are, is there going to be any resolutions to that, that character? And so you could have a sequel. It's just unfortunate we may not get that because of it being, it didn't fare well box office wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think people, it goes back to people want a sure bet, I think. Um, they like a lot of movies that are a little bit more, oh man, I don't want to get in trouble, but a little bit more formulaic in that we we feel confident the whole movie that it's going to end well, you know? Um, and I think most superhero movies are that way. It's really clear who the good guy is, it's really clear who the bad guy is, and it's clear that they're going to win in the end, and... It, they act consistently like the character um, we're used to seeing acts. And so all that makes us feel really good about it. So when you do a movie like this where you kind of throw that out the window, uh, you get really polarized reactions to it. And I think that's unfortunate because, I don't know, I, th- I think Zack Snyder was trying to go a little deeper with this one, and I think he did. And so I'm just kind of worried that, I, I would like to live in a space where we get both. I'm, I'm totally fine with the more upbeat and consistent superhero movies, but why can't we have, you know, some diversity here? Why can't we have different types? But I guess we'll just have to see. Yeah, I mean, that's my biggest concern going into Justice League. That's the thought I was I was holding off is that obviously they had plans for this three part story, and they knew it was going to be a lighter tone for Justice League. But it obviously seems like things were retooled. It seems, as an audience unaware of the movie right now, it seems like there was definitely some second thoughts of how Justice League should play out. And so I'm kind of curious, like, are we going to go into Justice League wondering, are we sitting, seeing a... <laughs> an, an untrue version of it, an, an altered version of what the story is meant to be? Like in the way that a Suicide Squad was. Yes. Because at, you look at that first trailer for David Ayer's Suicide Squad, that is very in the tone of a David Ayer movie. We get the Suicide mm-hmm. Squad, and it's definitely the first act is like, okay. And then the second and third act, like, wait, 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 wait. One of these things is not like the other. Yeah. And I mean, and it did affect that movie in a negative way. Like, I still like that movie, but. It does have tone issues because there's two opposing tones there, you know, and it's like it never really is able to find and stick with one. And so I think that is a concern for Justice League, but we'll see. Yeah. Um, Since we like to talk about music, and I know you brought music on your podcast. What do you think of Hans Zimmer's score for this movie? Um, So this is another thing that me and my husband were talking about earlier. Uh, I really love the music in this movie and in BBS. I think it's, I don't know. It's just really memorable and it really sticks with you. And I look forward to it when I see the movie, certain scenes, I'm like, Oh, this, here's where this, you know, theme comes on. And forgive me. I don't know the names of all the themes, but I really like them. Uh, (laughs) I think they, they fit with the scene really well. I feel like they do take risks with the song choices too. And I think they pay off really well. Have you ever seen that, uh, uh, that video about scores uh, that that I think it's that every frame a painting guy did. Yes, the yeah about the 
the Marvels, like Cinematic Universe, having not really an identity for their musical scores because everything seems rather conventional or be it bland when it came to their scores. Yeah, and you know, I'll be honest with you, I hadn't noticed that before. I saw that video and I thought, yeah, that's true. And and I think that's that this movie and BBS is that's definitely a strength for these two movies. The music is very memorable. Yeah. And I, I like the fact that the two scores of like the MCU that really stand out to me are the ones done by a composer from a different school, Alan Silvestri, who did Cats America, First Avenger and the Avengers. And he's mostly known for. All of Robinson Mecca's movies, so you have the Back to the Future trilogy, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Forrest Gump, and etc. And Predator, he the because but John McTiernan did that. So you come from like a different uh, school of thought when it comes to scoring movies. So I think that's why those two scores in particular stand out to me comparatively to the rest of the MCU. I know it sounds like I'm just burying the MCU a little by little. Uh, I am a fan of Marvel movies. Don't get me wrong. So please do not shank me at the next Comic-Con I go to. No, and, and I agree with you uh, when you're talking about um, Captain America and his movies. Uh, yeah, I mean, w- when I was watching that clip, my first thought was, well, I remember the music in Captain America. Yeah. You know, and, and I think it's it's obvious why. And, and those happen to end up being my favorite movies of the MCU ones, so yeah. I guess that those things are more connected than I thought. Right. I mean, like, I've made no bones about it. I think uh, Winter Soldier is probably the best of the MCU, and that's the standard I hold every other MCU movie up to, and so ever since then, I've been kind of, like, a little disappointed. I know it sounds like I'm just being very negative. I'm like, no, I just feel like I, I want to be proven wrong. I know you guys can do better, and I feel like the MCU's has been skating, there's been like almost like an autopilot. I want to see him take bold movies, bold moves like how the DC movies have been doing. I agree. I mean, I thought I felt that way about Civil War a little bit. I mean, I still like the movie, but when you compare it to Winter Soldier, I just thought, I don't know, Winter Soldier just had bigger impact for me. Yeah, and I feel like as well as like Captain America didn't become a background character in his own movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's and that's a one but the slides I have against that movie. But anyway, um, <laughs> before, yeah, before we go, before we get all the, all the angry uh, tweets and emails about it, um, it's a controversial episode, you know, we went there. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, it's the one thing like when I first started this podcast, I knew this would be one of the episodes I want to talk, one of the movies I want to talk about, but I knew it would be, I'm like, all right, who do I want to have on? Because if I had my buddy Mike on, we're just going to be yelling at each other for two hours about, because he's very, <laughs> on the opposite end of the spectrum when it comes to this movie. And obviously you and I are on a similar wavelength. So I'm like, mm-hmm. all right, who do I have on? So I feel like we are able to be objective enough and point out the things that we don't really enjoy about this movie, which comes into my next point, uh, favorite and least favorite scene in the movie. Ooh, that's tough. Um, the pressure's on. What is my favorite scene? Hmm. So I'll I'll pick like three just because I'm not good at picking just one. Um, I I really like the way that the movie opens um, when we were talking about uh, Krypton. I like that entire sequence uh, where we meet his father and, you know, how how they make that decision to send him away and all that's the explanation. Really like all that. Um, I like the school bus scene that we talked about earlier. Um, That really worked for me. It's very jarring. It's intense. 
Um, and then lastly, I guess I like the end of the movie because of how it leads into BBS and how it seamlessly leads into that. And all those questions, all the things that we're upset about from that scene directly feed into the next movie. Um, and they do have consequences. They do have weight to them. Yeah, those are my three favorite. All right. Uh, for my favorite, I, it's probably a tie between uh, the scene I mentioned before with uh, Jonathan telling, like, can I just keep pretending I'm your son? You are my son. It's just because that just hits me in such an emotional place that I can't help but love that. And it just makes me want to, like, give my dad a hug every time I see that scene. Um, it was funny because uh, as part, I'm part of the Real Fans for Real Movies Facebook page on uh, on on Facebook. And Jamie Drewley, co-host of Holy Badcast, he's like almost like kind of like live updating of where he is in that movie, and he's saying like, uh, like all right, well we get to cry together as we get to this moment here because it's just very upsetting. Um, <laughs> and my other favorite moment is when Clark Kent is introduced to Lois Lane at the end of the movie, and she says, "Welcome to the planet," and we see kind of like the first becomings of what Superman is going to be, and we see him smile, and the, the music just swells at that moment. I just really love that. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have a scene that's your least favorite or one you have the most problems with? Uh, you know, again, I think that I'm different from other fans in that I was introduced to Superman kind of late. Um, so this is like sort of my introduction. So I don't think I have as big emotional attachments to, you know, like there's no scene that I'm like, that's not right. I can't stand that. But, you know, if I had to pick one, uh, I guess I, I would still go back to the the school scene, a school bus scene where uh, Pa Kent tells him, you know, he he basically doesn't answer him when he says, you know, what what should I have done? Should I have let them drown? And he doesn't answer that. I, I do think that that's a weak part of the film for me. And I tend to agree because it's like there's so much heartache you could have been avoided if you just added one line of dialogue. And yeah. If we would still we would we would not be talking about it the, these few years later. And where does this movie rank in the amongst of like these DC movies and and Zack Snyder's movies to begin with? Where does that rank amongst his filmography? Mm, man, that's a tough question. Uh, so I guess if we want to do just like sort of the DCEU. Um, I think I go a little out of order from most people. I, I would probably say Wonder Woman, then BVS, then Man of Steel, then, uh, Suicide Squad. Mm -hmm. But I, I know that that's like, usually that's flipped. (laughs) Like usually it's, you know, Man of Steel, BVS, Wonder Woman, Suicide Squad. But for me, that's, that's the order I would put it in. And, uh. As far as compared to other Zack Snyder films, I think, I guess I, I would say Watchmen, then BVS, then Man of Steel. It's funny because that's my ranking of like my Snyder films because like because Watchmen I still love. I mean, uh, if this is the controversial episode, I'll just say it right now. I enjoy his adaptation more than the book itself. I know. Ooh. That, I know, I know. Because <laughs> I, I don't know that I feel that way, but yeah, yeah. Is see, it, see, that's that's one area where I had read the comic first. And so it was harder for me because I walked in with expectations. It actually took me a while to come back around to that movie and really appreciate it for what it is. 
um, because it's visually just so stunning and it's so much closer than a lot of other movies are that are adaptions. Um, But I had some issues with it. But, but yeah, so I can kind of understand it sometimes when fans have problems with movies because I, I know what that's like. But, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I can't say that I like it better. I mean, can't if, say that. if anything, I enjoy, I think the ending works better in the Ooh. movie than the book. I, I know, I know, <laughs> in a, log- a logical sense, because I don't think you could have introduced an alien that late in the game in the movie. It would have been like, wait, what? I, despite the fact that we had this, like, omnipresent, like, pretty much God, Captain uh, Adam ripoff in, mm-hmm. in uh, like, the Charlton characters, like, ripoff of, of Dr. Manhattan, but that's, that's I'm going to bury myself in another episode later down the road, so um, <laughs> for, in the DCEU ranking, it, yeah, it probably, for me, it probably goes BVS, uh, One Woman, then this, and then Suicide Squad. Suicide Squad, I still enjoy. Yes, I recognize it does have problems. I feel like they should have played up the fact that Joker and Harley's relationship is terrible. It should not yep. be. It should not be Romeo and Juliet. No, it's an abusive relationship. Um, I think just it was too tempting marketing wise to to change it for that reason. And then I think another issue with Suicide Squad is from an outsider's perspective, when you don't know those characters really, really well, I think people would have perceived it as, oh, here's one of the first superheroes with a like literally a lead female, and she's an abused woman, like. You know, I think they were worried about what kind of message that sends. Right. Um, and and I see it both ways. I understand, you know, questioning that choice. And then I understand, but, you know, you you put this character in the movie and then you're changing everything they're about. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough move. Um, I think the story that Ayers wanted to tell would have told it from that perspective because I think he was taking a lot of really big – risks with the characters i think he wanted to go there i think there would have been more you know there was sort of a i don't know a parallel of like all the characters were minorities and they were um in a place in society where it was easier like you know where where uh i guess they're sort of demonized marginalized and i think he was trying to make that parallel more and that kind of got lost in the uh, final cut of the movie so yeah, it's just like I see what he was trying to do, and I really like it. And it, you know, I, I think I still like the movie because I like some of the things he was still able to accomplish with it, like first, like Latino superhero, you know, just things like that that I think people really gloss over. They're just like, oh, it's horrible, and they don't look at any of the other stuff that is in that movie. Yeah, I, I just wish we would get like, the, like one day, like kind of like how Blade Runner, we'll get the proper cut eventually down the road. Yeah, like I, I know when I went to the theater and I looked around at everybody in it, I noticed that the people coming to see it were really diverse. And that was actually I was like, I don't know if this is my perception or not. But then when they talked about the statistics, it really was because they had more in that cast that were diverse. And so you got a more diverse audience. Like, I think that there's a lot of really good things that that movie did first that kind of get glossed over because of how the final cut was, unfortunately. Yeah. But, but. We'll, we'll start wrapping up here because we've we babbled okay, yeah. on long enough. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, final thoughts on Man of Steel. Um, yeah, I, like I said at the beginning, it, it really helped me to understand and have empathy for this character in a way that I didn't before. I think before I just saw him kind of like what you said earlier, I thought, 
okay, this is a guy who's perfect and a Boy Scout and, uh, you know, if you don't have a, a gun with kryptonite bullets or a kryptonite spear, you know, there's just no way to even challenge him. So I'm not really sure what the stakes are when I watch him fight somebody. Um, I don't really know why I should feel bad for somebody who's perfect. And I feel like this movie really helps you understand that from, you know, that concept from from his perspective. Um, I think the Jesus allegory is really great because, you know, just like uh, he's this, you know, alien coming to Earth. There's a parallel there with God becoming man. And there's, you know, obviously a big gods and men theme here with the Justice League in general. So I think all those things really work in its favor. Um, I like the risk that Zack Snyder took with the movie. I think that that it's a good thing. I want more diversity in superhero films. Like I said before, I sort of had superhero fatigue, and this type of movie is a type of movie that pulls me out of that. And, uh, yeah, I think it's a great story, and I really enjoyed it. I agree, and I feel like this is almost like because it's one of the ultimate immigrant stories out there that that like he obviously an alien coming to earth and earth accepting him and becoming one thing or you can even say like it's like oh he was come he was growing up in america and you would you don't want to get too prideful about it because then it just seems so nationalistic but it's like yeah he was he is an immigrant but he was able to succeed and he's able to thrive and, and because of our culture and the ideas of our culture and he becomes the personification of those ideas they say like, give me your tired, you're poor, you're weak, and so it's it's wonderful to see it. Kind of like even has that moment. Like I was born up in Kansas, I'm gonna be, I'm I'm gonna, I'm a good natured person, and obviously that became the inspiration for uh, Superman Under Red Sun, where where he landed in Russia and how he grew up differently there, and so seeing that here, it's it's welcoming. And how they were able to play that up and said that he is an outsider, that he is an alien. How realistically, how would humanity react to that? And I think it's, it does a wonderful job in that regard. It does take risks. It swings for the fences. Does it hit all? Does it, is it a home run every time? No. But I'd rather they do that than just be play it safe and just be so just homogenized like so many comic book movies or just movies in general tend to be. So I love this movie, and I'm going to continue to watch this for, for years to come. I can't wait what next is coming down the road for DC Films. So with that said, uh, Lisa, if you want people to follow you on social media and your podcast, where can they find you? So you can find my podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. Just search I Love That Movie. Um, if you want to reach out to me on Twitter, you can reach me at AYA Lisa Cosplay. And you can also reach me on Instagram under AYA, N as in Nancy, AMI, Lisa. And uh, we also have a closed Facebook group for um, that you're in uh, mm-hmm. uh, for my podcast called I Love That Movie. If you send a request, you're automatically, um, you know, well, you're in the group. It's basically just a safe space. You're allowed to talk about any movie that you want and how much you love it. And no one's allowed to put you down for it. So, so yeah. It, I can testify. It is a very positive group because there, there are other groups I'm part of. Like it can be kind of contentious. Like somebody could post an article and I'm like, nope, I'm not touching that because I'm just going to get dragged into a confrontation there and I am not doing that. And your group is nothing like that. It's just a very, very welcoming community. Good. I'm so glad. I mean, you know, it's, 
I I came up with that idea and that rule because I have been in other movie groups in the past and they've kind of fallen apart or they get really contentious or you get in a fight with somebody. I mean, people have really strong opinions about movies and that's understandable. Sometimes people have a connection with the film that you might not know about. Like they watched that movie with their dad um, before they passed away or, you know, some connection like that. So you know, people can get really emotional when they discuss movies. So I think by trying to say, hey, let's just make sure we're not attacking anyone personally or beating up a movie too much, um, I think that kind of makes it a, more of a safe space. And I appreciate it because, hey, I like a lot of movies that, you know, like like this one, that, that are very polarized and that a lot of people don't like. So I don't really like being beat up over that. So <laughs> that's yeah. kind of why I did that. Yeah, because we're because we're so busy in our lives, and whenever, however, we spend our free time, especially if it's with a movie and we enjoy it, and you find out somebody has a problem with that, it's like you're having a problem with how I'm conducting myself, how I'm conducting myself in my free time, and mm-hmm. you automatically almost put on the defense because you feel like that's almost like a personal attack, depending on how severe the person is putting down a movie that you enjoy. Yeah, and I think I don't know, maybe this is also controversial to say, but I think sometimes when you really, really love movies, there is this pressure to never have a, a taste for a movie that other people view as bad. Like that somehow hurts your credibility. And I really don't like that because I think you should be true to yourself and movies are subjective on, cer- on a certain level. And I think our opinions on them are a little subjective too. And so I, I always want to be open-minded about about that kind of stuff. I, I have my opinions on movies. There are some movies I do not like, but I'm not afraid to say when I like a movie that didn't get rave reviews because you never know. I mean, 10 years from now, people may look at that movie differently. That happens all the time. Right. I mean, one one of the concepts I brought up on a review not too long ago, that's like opening weekend versus the longevity of a movie, what's more important, what has more impact, etc. And what was it? Um... There's somebody I, like, I went to school with and who does not like any of the DC movies and compared BVS to certain political, if like liking uh, BVS is like liking certain political figures in our country these days. And I'm like, whoa, <sighs> dude, like that's A, that's a stretch. And B, you're just causing it. And I, I called him out on it. And he's like, all right, I may have overstepped. Like, you damn right you're overstepped. I think that was just, you're just, you're stoking fire for the sake of it. Since then, we've mm-hmm. been cool, but, like, at that point, I was like, <laughs> I, I'm going to throttle you next time I see you, but <laughs> but I was like, there we go, me being a ginger, having anger problems yet again. So I, this, is very, <laughs> this is very revealing, and I'm just like, I probably should go see an anger therapist at the end of this episode, now thinking about it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and so if you want to follow me on social media, I'm actually a very positive person, like, despite everything I've said. Uh <laughs> You can follow me on Twitter at TimothyRooney2, my Instagram at TRooney1012, my Facebook and YouTube pages under the same banner of Through the Lens Productions, where I post all my short films, as well as podcasts in video form, which means I just pretty much like take the audio from the podcast with an image, put it up there. And if I do special promos for podcasts, that's where they'll go. And... And, of course, if you like this uh, episode and this show, give us a five-star review and written review on iTunes because it helps get the word out. And if you enjoy this, spread the word. Tell tell your friends and family if you enjoy this show. And, Lisa, I want to say thank you so much for taking time out of your day, or evening, I should say, to uh, do this episode with me. 
Of course. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. It was really exciting to get to talk about this movie. I had a lot of thoughts on it, and I wanted to hear yours too. So thanks again. No problem. And everybody, I hope you enjoyed this episode. And stay tuned because I know this is near the end of the month, but and, I've, and December is right around the corner, so we have a lot of Christmas, or at least a few Christmas movies and holiday movies in the in the gun or planned to be, as well as episode 89 is coming up very soon. Whoa. And, and so I wonder what could be talked about for episode 89. I'll leave that hmm. little. Yes, I wonder <laughs> what that could be. So I uh, hope everybody's enjoyed this episode, and we'll talk to you soon.